This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers. It's read by Mark Turetsky. It's part of a larger book called The King in Yellow, which is now available on Audible and is read by Mark Turetsky. The story runs 1 hour 25 minutes, and we'll be discussing it afterwards. The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers Narrated by Mark Turetsky 1. Ne rayons pas les fous. Leur folie dure plus longtemps que la nôtre. Voilà toute la différence. Toward the end of the year 1920, the government of the United States had practically completed the program, adopted during the last months of President Winthrop's administration. The country was apparently tranquil. Everybody knows how the tariff and labor questions were settled. The war with Germany, incident on that country's seizure of the Samoan Islands, had left no visible scars upon the Republic, and the temporary occupation of Norfolk by the invading army had been forgotten in the joy over repeated naval victories and the subsequent ridiculous plight of General von Gartenlaub's forces in the state of New Jersey. The Cuban and Hawaiian investments had paid 100%, and the territory of Samoa was well worth its cost as a coaling station. The country was in a superb state of defense. Every coast city had been well supplied with land fortifications. The army, under the parental eye of the general staff, organized according to the Prussian system, had been increased to 300,000 men, with a territorial reserve of a million and six magnificent squadrons of cruisers and battleships patrolled the six stations of the navigable seas, leaving a steam reserve amply fitted to control home waters. The gentlemen from the West had at last been constrained to acknowledge that a college for the training of diplomats was as necessary as law schools are for the training of barristers. Consequently, we were no longer represented abroad by incompetent patriots. The nation was prosperous. Chicago, for a moment paralyzed after a second great fire, had risen from its ruins, white and imperial, and more beautiful than the white city which had been built for its plaything in 1893. Everywhere, good architecture was replacing bad, and even in New York, a sudden craving for decency had swept away a great portion of the existing horrors. Streets had been widened, properly paved and lighted. Trees had been planted, squares laid out, elevated structures demolished, and underground roads built to replace them. The new government buildings and barracks were fine bits of architecture, and the long system of stone keys which completely surrounded the island had been turned into parks which proved a godsend to the population. The subsidizing of the state theater and state opera brought its own reward. The United States National Academy of Design was much like European institutions of the same kind. Nobody envied the Secretary of Fine Arts, either his cabinet position or his portfolio. 
the Secretary of Forestry and Game Preservation had a much easier time, thanks to the new system of National Mounted Police. We had profited well by the latest treaties with France and England, the exclusion of foreign-born Jews as a measure of self-preservation, the new independent Negro state of Sewanee, the checking of immigration, the new laws concerning naturalization, and the gradual centralization of power in the executive all contributed to national calm and prosperity. When the government solved the Indian problem and squadrons of Indian cavalry scouts in native costume were substituted for the pitiable organizations tacked on to the tail of skeletonized regiments by a former secretary of war, the nation drew a long sigh of relief. When, after the colossal Congress of Religions, bigotry and intolerance were laid in their graves, and kindness and charity began to draw warring sects together, many thought the millennium had arrived, at least in the New World, which, after all, is a world by itself. But self-preservation is the first law, and the United States had to look on in helpless sorrow as Germany, Italy, Spain, and Belgium writhed in the throes of anarchy, while Russia, watching from the Caucasus, stooped and bound them one by one. In the city of New York, the summer of 1899 was signalized by the dismantling of the elevated railroads. The summer of 1900 will live in the memories of New York people for many a cycle. The Dodge statue was removed in that year. In the following winter began that agitation for the repeal of the laws prohibiting suicide, which bore its final fruit in the month of April 1920, when the first government lethal chamber was opened on Washington Square. I had walked down that day from Dr. Archer's house on Madison Avenue, where I had been as a mere formality. Ever since that fall from my horse four years before, I had been troubled at times with pains in the back of my head and neck. But now for months they had been absent, and the doctor sent me away that day, saying there was nothing more to be cured in me. It was hardly worth his fee to be told that. I knew it myself. Still, I did not grudge him the money. What I minded was the mistake which he made at first. When they picked me up from the pavement where I lay unconscious, and somebody had mercifully sent a bullet through my horse's head, I was carried to Dr. Archer, and he, pronouncing my brain affected, placed me in his private asylum, where I was obliged to endure treatment for insanity. At last he decided that I was well, and I, knowing that my mind had always been as sound as his, if not sounder, paid my tuition, as he jokingly called it, and left. I told him, smiling, that I would get even with him for his mistake, and he laughed heartily and asked me to call once in a while. I did so, hoping for a chance to even up accounts, but he gave me none, and I told him I would wait. The fall from my horse had fortunately left no evil results. On the contrary, it had changed my whole character for the better, from a lazy young man about town, I had become active, energetic, temperate, and above all, oh, above all else, ambitious. There was only one thing which troubled me. I laughed at my own uneasiness, and yet it troubled me. 
During my convalescence, I had bought and read for the first time The King in Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop. I started up and flung the book into the fireplace. The volume struck the barred gate and fell open on the hearth in the firelight. If I had not caught a glimpse of the opening words in the second act, I should never have finished it. But as I stooped to pick it up, my eyes became riveted to the open page. And with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals and crept, shaking to my bedroom, where I read it and reread it, and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of Holly, and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. When the French government seized the translated copies which had just arrived in Paris, London, of course, became eager to read it. It is well known how the book spread like an infectious disease from city to city, from continent to continent, barred out here, confiscated there, denounced by press and pulpit, censured even by the most advanced of literary anarchists. No definite principles had been violated in those wicked pages, no doctrine promulgated, no convictions outraged. It could not be judged by any known standard, yet, although it was acknowledged that the supreme note of art had been struck in The King in Yellow, all felt that human nature could not bear the strain, nor thrive on words in which the essence of purest poison lurked. The very banality and innocence of the first act only allowed the blow to fall afterward with more awful effect. It was, I remember, the 13th day of April, 1920, that the first government lethal chamber was established on the south side of Washington Square, between Worcester Street and South Fifth Avenue. The block, which had formerly consisted of a lot of shabby old buildings, used as cafes and restaurants for foreigners, had been acquired by the government in the winter of 1898. The French and Italian cafes and restaurants were torn down. The whole block was enclosed by a gilded iron railing and converted into a lovely garden with lawns, flowers, and fountains. In the center of the garden stood a small white building, severely classical in architecture, and surrounded by thickets of flowers. Six ionic columns supported the roof, and the single door was of bronze. A splendid marble group of the fates stood before the door, the work of a young American sculptor, Boris Yvain, who had died in Paris when only twenty-three years old. The inauguration ceremonies were in progress as I crossed University Place and entered the square. I threaded my way through the silent throng of spectators, but was stopped at 4th Street by a cordon of police. A regiment of United States lancers were drawn up in a hollow square round the lethal chamber. 
On a raised tribune facing Washington Park stood the governor of New York, and behind him were grouped the mayor of New York and Brooklyn, the inspector general of police, the commandant of the state troops, Colonel Livingston, military aide to the president of the United States, General Blount, commanding at Governor's Island, Major General Hamilton, commanding the garrison of New York and Brooklyn, Admiral Buffby of the fleet in the North River, Surgeon General Lansford, the staff of the National Free Hospital, Senators Wise and Franklin of New York, and the Commissioner of Public Works. The Tribune was surrounded by a squadron of hussars of the National Guard. The Governor was finishing his reply to the short speech of the Surgeon General. I heard him say, The laws prohibiting suicide and providing punishment for any attempt at self-destruction have been repealed. The government has seen fit to acknowledge the right of man to end an existence which may have become intolerable to him through physical suffering or mental despair. It is believed that the community will be benefited by the removal of such people from their midst. Since the passage of this law, the number of suicides in the United States has not increased. Now the government has determined to establish a lethal chamber in every city, town, and village in the country. It remains to be seen whether or not that class of human creatures, from whose desponding ranks new victims of self-destruction fall daily, will accept the relief thus provided. He paused and turned to the white lethal chamber. The silence in the street was absolute. There a painless death awaits him who can no longer bear the sorrows of this life. If death is welcome, let him seek it there. Then quickly turning to the military aid of the president's household, he said, I declare the lethal chamber open. And again facing the vast crowd, he cried in a clear voice, Citizens of New York and of the United States of America, through me the government declares the lethal chamber to be open. The solemn hush was broken by a sharp cry of command, and the squadron of hussars filed after the governor's carriage. The lancers wheeled and formed along Fifth Avenue to wait for the commandant of the garrison, and the mounted police followed them. I left the crowd to gape and stare at the white marble death chamber, and crossing South Fifth Avenue, walked along the western side of that thoroughfare to Bleecker Street. Then I turned to the right and stopped before a dingy shop which bore the sign, Hauberk, Armorer. I glanced in at the doorway and saw Hauberk busy in his little shop at the end of the hall. He looked up and, catching sight of me, cried in his deep, hearty voice, Come in, Mr. Castain. Constance, his daughter, rose to meet me as I crossed the threshold and held out her pretty hand, but I saw the blush of disappointment on her cheeks and knew that it was another Castain she had expected, my cousin Louis. I smiled at her confusion and complimented her on the banner she was embroidering from a colored plate. Old Hauberk sat riveting the worn greaves of some ancient suit of armor, and the ting, ting, ting of his little hammer sounded pleasantly in the quaint shop. Presently he dropped his hammer and fussed about for a moment with a tiny wrench, 
The soft clash of the mail sent a thrill of pleasure through me. I loved to hear the music of steel brushing against steel, the mellow shock of the mallet on thigh pieces, and the jingle of chain armor. That was the only reason I went to see Hauberk. He had never interested me personally, nor did Constance, except for the fact of her being in love with Lewis. This did occupy my attention, and sometimes even kept me awake at night. But I knew in my heart that all would come right, and that I should arrange their future as I expected to arrange that of my kind doctor, John Archer. However, I should never have troubled myself about visiting them just then, had it not been, as I say, that the music of the tinkling hammer had for me this strong fascination. I would sit for hours, listening and listening, and when a stray sunbeam struck the inlaid steel, the sensation it gave me was almost too keen to endure. My eyes would become fixed, dilating with a pleasure that stretched every nerve almost to breaking, until some movement of the old armorer cut off the ray of sunlight. Then, still thrilling secretly, I leaned back and listened again to the sound of the polishing rag, swish, swish, rubbing rust from the rivets. Constance worked with the embroidery over her knees, now and then pausing to examine more closely the pattern in the colored plate from the Metropolitan Museum. Who is this for? I asked. Halberg explained that, in addition to the treasures of armor in the Metropolitan Museum, of which he had been appointed armorer, he also had charge of several collections belonging to rich amateurs. This was the missing greave of a famous suit, which a client had traced to a little shop in Paris on the Quai d'Orsay. He, Hauberk, had negotiated for and secured the greave, and now the suit was complete. He laid down his hammer and read me the history of the suit, traced since 1450 from owner to owner until it was acquired by Thomas Stainbridge. When his superb collection was sold, this client of Hauberk's bought the suit, and since then the search for the missing greave had been pushed until it was, almost by accident, located in Paris. Did you continue the search so persistently without any certainty of the grieve being still in existence? I demanded. Of course, he replied coolly. Then for the first time, I took a personal interest in Hauberk. It was worth something to you, I ventured. No, he replied, laughing. My pleasure in finding it was my reward. Have you no ambition to be rich? I asked, smiling. My one ambition is to be the best armorer in the world, he answered gravely. Constance asked me if I had seen the ceremonies at the lethal chamber. She herself had noticed cavalry passing up Broadway that morning, and had wished to see the inauguration. But her father wanted the banner finished, and she had stayed at his request. Did you see your cousin, Mr. Castaigne, there? she asked, with the slightest tremor of her soft eyelashes. No, I replied carelessly. Lewis's regiment is maneuvering out in Westchester County. I rose and picked up my hat and cane. Are you going upstairs to see the lunatic again? laughed old Hauberk. 
If Hobrick knew how I loathed that word lunatic, he would never use it in my presence. It rouses certain feelings within me which I do not care to explain. However, I answered him quietly, I think I shall drop in and see Mr. Wilde for a moment or two. Poor fellow, said Constance with a shake of the head. It must be hard to live alone year after year, poor, crippled, and almost demented. It is very good of you, Mr. Castaigne, to visit him as often as you do. I think he is vicious, observed Hauberk, beginning again with his hammer. I listened to the golden tinkle on the grieve plates. When he had finished, I replied, No, he is not vicious, nor is he in the least demented. His mind is a wonder chamber from which he can extract treasures that you and I would give years of our life to acquire. Hauberk laughed. I continued a little impatiently. He knows history as no one else could know it. Nothing, however trivial, escapes his search. And his memory is so absolute, so precise in details, that were it known in New York that such a man existed, the people could not honor him enough. Nonsense, muttered Hauberk, searching on the floor for a fallen rivet. Is it nonsense? I asked, managing to suppress what I felt. Is it nonsense when he says that the tacits and cuisards of the enameled suit of armor commonly known as the prince's emblazoned can be found among a mass of rusty theatrical properties, broken stoves, and rag-pickers' refuse in a garret in Pell Street? Hobrick's hammer fell to the ground, but he picked it up and asked with a great deal of calm how I knew that the tacits and left cuisard were missing from the prince's emblazoned. I did not know until Mr. Wilde mentioned it to me the other day. He said they were in the garret of 998 Pell Street. Nonsense, he cried, but I noticed his hand trembling under his leathern apron. Is this nonsense too? I asked pleasantly. Is it nonsense when Mr. Wilde continually speaks of you as the Marquis of Avonshire and of Miss Constance? I did not finish, for Constance had started to her feet with terror written on every feature. Hauberk looked at me and slowly smoothed his leathern apron. That is impossible, he observed. Mr. Wilde may know a great many things. About armor, for instance, and the prince's emblazoned, I interposed, smiling. Yes, he continued, slowly. About armor also, maybe. But he is wrong in regard to the Marquis of Avonshire, who, as you know, killed his wife's traducer years ago and went to Australia where he did not long survive his wife. Mr. Wilde is wrong, murmured Constance. Her lips were blanched, but her voice was sweet and calm. Let us agree, if you please, that in this one circumstance, Mr. Wilde is wrong, I said. 2. I climbed the three dilapidated flights of stairs, which I had so often climbed before, and knocked at a small door at the end of the corridor. Mr. Wilde opened the door and I walked in. When he had double-locked the door and pushed a heavy chest against it, he came and sat down beside me peering up into my face with his little light-colored eyes. 
Half a dozen new scratches covered his nose and cheeks, and the silver wires which supported his artificial ears had become displaced. I thought I had never seen him so hideously fascinating. He had no ears. The artificial ones, which now stood out at an angle from the fine wire, were his one weakness. They were made of wax and painted a shell pink, but the rest of his face was yellow. He might better have reveled in the luxury of some artificial fingers for his left hand, which was absolutely fingerless, but it seemed to cause him no inconvenience, and he was satisfied with his wax ears. He was very small, scarcely higher than a child of ten, but his arms were magnificently developed, and his thighs as thick as any athlete's. Still, the most remarkable thing about Mr. Wilde was that a man of his marvelous intelligence and knowledge should have such a head. It was flat and pointed, like the heads of many of those unfortunates whom people imprison in asylums for the weak-minded. Many called him insane, but I knew him to be as sane as I was. I do not doubt that he was eccentric, the mania he had for keeping that cat and teasing her until she flew at his face like a demon was certainly eccentric. I never could understand why he kept the creature, nor what pleasure he found in shutting himself up in his room with this surly, vicious beast. I remember once, glancing up from the manuscript I was studying by the light of some tallow dips, and seeing Mr. Wilde squatting motionless on his high chair his eyes fairly blazing with excitement, while the cat, which had risen from her place before the stove, came creeping across the floor right at him. Before I could move, she flattened her belly to the ground, crouched, trembled, and sprang into his face. Howling and foaming, they rolled over and over on the floor, scratching and clawing, until the cat screamed and fled under the cabinet, and Mr. Wilde turned over on his back, his limbs contracting and curling up like the legs of a dying spider. He was eccentric. Mr. Wilde had climbed into his high chair and, after studying my face, picked up a dog's-eared ledger and opened it. Henry B. Matthews, he read, bookkeeper with Wiseau, Wiseau and Company, dealers in church ornaments, called April 3rd. Reputation damaged on the racetrack. Known as a welcher. Reputation to be repaired by August 1st. Retainer, $5. He turned the page and ran his fingerless knuckles down the closely written columns. P. Green Dusenberry, Minister of the Gospel, Fair Beach, New Jersey. Reputation damaged in the Bowery. To be repaired as soon as possible. Retainer, one hundred dollars. He coughed and added, Called April 6th. Then you are not in need of money, Mr. Wilde, I inquired. Listen. He coughed again. Mrs. C. Hamilton Chester of Chester Park, New York City. Called April 7th. Reputation damaged at Dieppe, France. To be repaired by October 1st. Retainer five hundred dollars. Note. See Hamilton Chester, Captain USS Avalanche, ordered home from South Sea Squadron October 1st. Well, I said, the profession of a repairer of reputations is lucrative. His colorless eyes sought mine. 
I only wanted to demonstrate that I was correct. You said it was impossible to succeed as a repairer of reputations, that even if I did succeed in certain cases, it would cost me more than I would gain by it. Today, I have five hundred men in my employ, who are poorly paid, but who pursue the work with an enthusiasm which possibly may be born of fear. These men enter every shade and grade of society. Some even are pillars of the most exclusive social temples. Others are the prop and pride of the financial world. Still others hold undisputed sway among the fancy and the talent. I choose them at my leisure from those who reply to my advertisements. It is easy enough. They are all cowards. I could treble the number in twenty days if I wished. So you see, those who have in their keeping the reputations of their fellow citizens, I have in my pay. They may turn on you, I suggested. He rubbed his thumb over his cropped ears and adjusted the wax substitutes. I think not, he murmured thoughtfully. I seldom have to apply the whip, and then only once. Besides, they like their wages. How do you apply the whip? I demanded. His face for a moment was awful to look upon. His eyes dwindled to a pair of green sparks. I invite them to come and have a little chat with me, he said in a soft voice. A knock at the door interrupted him, and his face resumed its amiable expression. Who is it? he inquired. Mr. Stalet, was the answer. Come tomorrow, replied Mr. Wilde. Impossible, began the other, but was silenced by a sort of bark from Mr. Wilde. Come tomorrow, he repeated. We heard somebody move away from the door and turn the corner by the stairway. Who is that? I asked. Arnold Stalet owner and editor-in-chief of the great New York Daily. He drummed on the ledger with his fingerless hand, adding, I pay him very badly, but he thinks it a good bargain. Arnold Stalet, I repeated, amazed. Yes, said Mr. Wilde, with a self-satisfied cough. The cat, which had entered the room as he spoke, hesitated, looked up at him, and snarled. He climbed down from the chair and, squatting on the floor, took the creature into his arms and caressed her. The cat ceased snarling and presently began a loud purring which seemed to increase in timber as he stroked her. Where are the notes? I asked. He pointed to the table, and for the hundredth time I picked up the bundle of manuscript entitled The Imperial Dynasty of America. One by one I studied the well-worn pages, worn only by my own handling, and although I knew all by heart from the beginning, when from Carcosa, the Hyades, Hastur, and Aldebaran, to Castain, Louis de Calvados, born December 19, 1877, I read it with an eager, rapt attention, pausing to repeat parts of it aloud, and dwelling especially on Hildred de Calvados, only son of Hildred Castain and Edith Landis Castain, first in succession, etc., etc. 
When I finished, Mr. Wilde nodded and coughed. Speak of your legitimate ambition, he said. How do Constance and Lewis get along? She loves him, I replied simply. The cat on his knees suddenly turned and struck at his eyes, and he flung her off and climbed onto the chair opposite me. And Dr. Archer, but that's a matter you can settle any time you wish, he added. Yes, I replied, Dr. Archer can wait, but it is time I saw my cousin Lewis. It is time, he repeated. Then he took another ledger from the table and ran over the leaves rapidly. We are now in communication with ten thousand men, he muttered. We can count on one hundred thousand within the first twenty-eight hours, and in forty-eight hours the state will rise en masse. The country follows the state, and the portion that will not, I mean California and the Northwest, might better never have been inhabited. I shall not send them the yellow sign. The blood rushed to my head. But I only answered, a new broom sweeps clean. The ambition of Caesar and of Napoleon pales before that which could not rest until it had seized the minds of men and controlled even their unborn thoughts, said Mr. Wilde. You are speaking of the king in yellow, I groaned with a shudder. He is a king whom emperors have served. I am content to serve him, I replied. Mr. Wilde sat rubbing his ears with his crippled hand. Perhaps Constance does not love him, he suggested. I started to reply, but a sudden burst of military music from the street below drowned my voice. The 20th Dragoon Regiment, formerly in garrison at Mount St. Vincent, was returning from the maneuvers in Westchester County, to its new barracks on East Washington Square. It was my cousin's regiment. They were a fine lot of fellows, in their pale blue, tight-fitting jackets, jaunty busbies and white riding breeches with the double yellow stripe, into which their limbs seemed molded. Every other squadron was armed with lances, from the metal points of which fluttered yellow and white pennons. The band passed, playing the regimental march, then came the colonel and staff, the horses crowding and trampling, while their heads bobbed in unison, and the pennons fluttered from their lance points. The troopers, who rode with the beautiful English seat, looked brown as berries from their bloodless campaign among the farms of Westchester, and the music of their sabers against the stirrups, and the jingle of spurs and carbines was delightful to me. I saw Lewis riding with his squadron. He was as handsome an officer as I have ever seen. Mr. Wilde, who had mounted a chair by the window, saw him too, but said nothing. Lewis turned and looked straight at Hobrick's shop as he passed, and I could see the flush on his brown cheeks. I think Constance must have been at the window. When the last troopers had clattered by and the last pennons vanished into South Fifth Avenue, Mr. Wilde clambered out of his chair and dragged the chest away from the door. Yes, he said. It is time that you saw your cousin Lewis. He unlocked the door, and I picked up my hat and stick and stepped into the corridor. The stairs were dark. Groping about, 
I set my foot on something soft, which snarled and spit, and I aimed a murderous blow at the cat. But my cane shivered to splinters against the balustrade, and the beast scurried back into Mr. Wilde's room. Passing Hobrick's door again, I saw him still at work on the armor, but I did not stop, and stepping out into Bleecker Street, I followed it to Worcester, skirted the grounds of the lethal chamber, and crossing Washington Park, went straight to my rooms in the Benedict. Here I lunched comfortably, read the Herald and the Meteor, and finally went to the steel safe in my bedroom and set the time combination. The three and three-quarter minutes which is necessary to wait, while the time lock is opening, are to me golden moments. From the instant I set the combination to the moment when I grasp the knobs and swing back the solid steel doors, I live in an ecstasy of expectation. Those moments must be like moments passed in paradise. I know what I am to find at the end of the time limit. I know what the massive safe holds secure for me, for me alone, and the exquisite pleasure of waiting is hardly enhanced when the safe opens and I lift from its velvet crown a diadem of purest gold, blazing with diamonds. I do this every day, and yet the joy of waiting and at last touching again the diadem only seems to increase as the days pass. It is a diadem fit for a king among kings, an emperor among emperors. The king in yellow might scorn it, but it shall be worn by his royal servant. I held it in my arms until the alarm in the safe rang harshly, and then tenderly, proudly, I replaced it and shut the steel doors. I walked slowly back into my study, which faces Washington Square, and leaned on the windowsill. The afternoon sun poured into my windows, and a gentle breeze stirred the branches of the elms and maples in the park, now covered with buds and tender foliage. A flock of pigeons circled about the tower of the memorial church, sometimes alighting on the purple-tiled roof, sometimes wheeling downward to the lotus fountain in front of the marble arch. The gardeners were busy with the flower beds around the fountain, and the freshly turned earth smelled sweet and spicy. A lawnmower, drawn by a fat white horse, clinked across the green sward, and watering carts poured showers of spray over the asphalt drives. Around the statue of Peter Stuyvesant, which in 1897 had replaced the monstrosity supposed to represent Garibaldi, children played in the spring sunshine, and nurse girls wheeled elaborate baby carriages with a reckless disregard for the pasty-faced occupants which could probably be explained by the presence of half a dozen trim dragoon troopers languidly lolling on the benches. Through the trees, the Washington Memorial Arch glistened like silver in the sunshine, and beyond, on the eastern extremity of the square, the gray stone barracks of the dragoons and the white granite artillery stables were alive with color and motion. I looked at the lethal chamber on the corner of the square opposite. A few curious people still lingered about the gilded iron railing, but inside the grounds the paths were deserted. I watched the fountains ripple and sparkle. The sparrows had already found this new bathing nook, 
and the basins were covered with the dusty feathered little things. Two or three white peacocks picked their way across the lawns, and a drab-colored pigeon sat so motionless on the arm of one of the fates that it seemed to be a part of the sculptured stone. As I was turning carelessly away, a slight commotion in the group of curious loiterers around the gates attracted my attention. A young man had entered and was advancing with nervous strides along the gravel path which leads to the bronze doors of the lethal chamber. He paused a moment before the fates, and as he raised his head to those three mysterious faces, the pigeon rose from its sculptured perch, circled about for a moment, and wheeled to the east. The young man pressed his hand to his face, and then, with an undefinable gesture, sprang up the marble steps, the bronze doors closed behind him, and half an hour later, the loiterers slouched away, and the frightened pigeon returned to its perch in the arms of fate. I put on my hat and went out into the park for a little walk before dinner. As I crossed the central driveway, a group of officers passed, and one of them called out, Hello, Hildred, and came back to shake hands with me. It was my cousin, Louis, who stood smiling and tapping his spurred heels with his riding whip. Just back from Westchester, he said. Been doing the bucolic, milk and curds, you know, dairy maids and sunbonnets who say, hey ow, and I don't think when you tell them they're pretty. I'm nearly dead for a square meal at Delmonico's. What's the news? There is none, I replied pleasantly. I saw your regiment coming in this morning. Did you? I didn't see you. Where were you? In Mr. Wilde's window. Oh, hell he began impatiently. That man is stark mad. I don't understand why you... He saw how annoyed I felt by this outburst and begged my pardon. Really, old chap, he said. I don't mean to run down a man you like, but for the life of me, I can't see what the deuce you find in common with Mr. Wilde. He's not well-bred, to put it generously. He is hideously deformed. His head is the head of a criminally insane person. You know yourself, he's been in an asylum. So have I, I interrupted calmly. Lewis looked startled and confused for a moment, but recovered and slapped me heartily on the shoulder. You were completely cured, he began, but I stopped him again. I suppose you mean that I was simply acknowledged never to have been insane. Of course that, that's what I meant, he laughed. I disliked his laugh because I knew it was forced, but I nodded gaily and asked him where he was going. Lewis looked after his brother officers who had now almost reached Broadway. We had intended to sample a Brunswick cocktail, but to tell you the truth, I was anxious for an excuse to go and see Hauberk instead. Come along, I'll make you my excuse. We found old Hauberk neatly attired in a fresh spring suit, standing at the door of his shop and sniffing the air. I had just decided to take Constance for a little stroll before dinner, he replied to the impetuous volley of questions from Lewis. We thought of walking on the park terrace along the North River. At that moment, Constance appeared and grew pale and rosy by turns as Lewis bent over her small gloved fingers.
I tried to excuse myself, alleging an engagement uptown, but Lewis and Constance would not listen, and I saw I was expected to remain and engage old Hobrick's attention. After all, it would be just as well if I kept my eye on Lewis, I thought, and when they hailed a Spring Street horse car, I got in after them and took my seat beside the armorer. The beautiful line of parks and granite terraces overlooking the wharves along the North River, which were built in 1910 and finished in the autumn of 1917, had become one of the most popular promenades in the metropolis. They extended from the Battery to 190th Street, overlooking the Noble River and affording a fine view of the Jersey Shore and the Highlands opposite. Cafes and restaurants were scattered here and there among the trees, and twice a week military bands from the garrison played in the kiosks on the parapets. We sat down in the sunshine on the bench at the foot of the equestrian statue of General Sheridan. Constance tipped her sunshade to shield her eyes, and she and Lewis began a murmuring conversation which was impossible to catch. Old Hauberk, leaning on his ivory-headed cane, lighted an excellent cigar, the mate to which I politely refused, and smiled at vacancy. The sun hung low above the Staten Island woods, and the bay was dyed with golden hues reflected from the sun-warmed sails of the shipping in the harbor. Brigs, schooners, yachts, clumsy ferryboats, their decks swarming with people, Railroad transports carrying lines of brown, blue, and white freight cars, stately sound steamers, déclassé tramp steamers, coasters, dredgers, scows, and everywhere pervading the entire bay, impudent little tugs puffing and whistling officiously. These were the craft which churned the sunlight waters as far as the eye could reach. In calm contrast to the hurry of sailing vessel and steamer, a silent fleet of white warships lay motionless in midstream. Constance's merry laugh aroused me from my reverie. What are you staring at? she inquired. Nothing. The fleet, I smiled. Then Lewis told us what the vessels were, pointing out each by its relative position to the old red fort on Governor's Island. That little cigar-shaped thing is a torpedo boat, he explained. There are four more lying close together. They are the tarpon, the falcon, the sea fox, and the octopus. The gunboats just above are the Princeton, the Champlain, the Stillwater, and the Erie. Next to them lie the cruisers Farragut and Los Angeles and above them the battleships California and Dakota, and the Washington, which is the flagship. Those two squatty-looking chunks of metal which are anchored there off Castle William are the double-turreted monitors Terrible and Magnificent. Behind them lies the ram Osceola. Constance looked at him with deep approval in her beautiful eyes. What loads of things you know for a soldier, she said and we all joined in the laugh which followed. Presently, Lewis rose with a nod to us and offered his arm to Constance, and they strolled away along the river wall. Hauberk watched them for a moment and then turned to me. Mr. Wilde was right, he said. I have found the missing tacits and the left queasard of the princes emblazoned in a vile old junk garret in Pell Street. 998, I inquired with a smile. 
Yes. Mr. Wilde is a very intelligent man, I observed. I want to give him the credit of this most important discovery, continued Hobrick, and I intend it shall be known that he is entitled to the fame of it. He won't thank you for that, I answered sharply. Please say nothing about it. Do you know what it is worth? said Hobrick. No, fifty dollars, perhaps. It is valued at five hundred, but the owner of the prince's emblazoned will give two thousand dollars to the person who completes his suit. That reward also belongs to Mr. Wilde. He doesn't want it. He refuses it, I answered angrily. What do you know about Mr. Wilde? He doesn't need the money. He is rich, or will be, richer than any living man except myself. What will we care for money then? What will we care, he and I, when, when, when what? demanded Hauberk, astonished. You will see, I replied, on my guard again. He looked at me narrowly, much as Dr. Archer used to, and I knew he thought I was mentally unsound. Perhaps it was fortunate for him that he did not use the word lunatic just then. No, I replied to his unspoken thought. I am not mentally weak. My mind is as healthy as Mr. Wilde's. I do not care to explain just yet what I have on hand, but it is an investment which will pay more than mere gold, silver, and precious stones. It will secure the happiness and prosperity of a continent, yes, a hemisphere. Oh, said Hauberk. And eventually, I continued more quietly, it will secure the happiness of the whole world. And, incidentally, your own happiness and prosperity, as well as Mr. Wilde's. Exactly, I smiled but I could have throttled him for taking that tone. He looked at me in silence for a while, and then said very gently, Why don't you give up your books and studies, Mr. Castaigne, and take a tramp among the mountains somewhere or other? You used to be fond of fishing. Take a cast or two at the trout in the Wranglies. I don't care for fishing any more," I answered, without a shade of annoyance in my voice. You used to be fond of everything he continued. Athletics, yachting, shooting, riding. I have never cared to ride since my fall, I said quietly. Ah, yes, your fall, he repeated, looking away from me. I thought this nonsense had gone far enough, so I brought the conversation back to Mr. Wilde, but he was scanning my face again in a manner highly offensive to me. Mr. Wilde, he repeated, do you know what he did this afternoon? He came downstairs and nailed a sign over the hall door next to mine. It read, Mr. Wilde, Repairer of Reputations, Third Bell. Do you know what a repairer of reputations can be? I do, I replied, suppressing the rage within. Oh, he said again. Lewis and Constance came strolling by, and stopped to ask if we would join them. Hauberk looked at his watch. At the same moment, a puff of smoke shot from the casemates of Castle William, and the boom of the sunset gun rolled across the water and was re-echoed from the highlands opposite. 
The flag came running down from the flagpole. The bugles sounded on the white decks of the warships, and the first electric light sparkled out from the Jersey shore. As I turned into the city with Hauberk, I heard Constance murmur something to Lewis, which I did not understand. But Lewis whispered, My darling, in reply, and again, walking ahead with Hauberk through the square, I heard a murmur of Sweetheart and My Own Constance, and I knew the time had nearly arrived when I should speak of important matters with my cousin Lewis. 3. One morning early in May, I stood before the steel safe in my bedroom, trying on the golden jeweled crown. The diamonds flashed fire as I turned to the mirror, and the heavy beaten gold burned like a halo about my head. I remembered Camilla's agonized scream and the awful words echoing through the dim streets of Carcosa. They were the last lines in the first act, and I dared not think of what followed. Dared not, even in the spring sunshine, there in my own room, surrounded with familiar objects, reassured by the bustle from the street and the voices of the servants in the hallway outside. For those poisoned words had dropped slowly into my heart as death sweat drops upon a bedsheet and is absorbed. Trembling, I put the diadem from my head and wiped my forehead, but I thought of Hastur, and of my own rightful ambition, and I remembered Mr. Wilde as I had last left him, his face all torn and bloody from the claws of that devil's creature, and what he said. Ah, what he said. The alarm bell in the safe began to whir harshly, and I knew my time was up, but I would not heed it, and replacing the flashing circlet upon my head, I turned defiantly to the mirror. I stood for a long time, absorbed in the changing expression of my own eyes. The mirror reflected a face which was like my own, but whiter, and so thin that I hardly recognized it. And all the time I kept repeating between my clenched teeth, The day has come, the day has come, while the alarm in the safe whirred and clamored, and the diamonds sparkled and flamed above my brow. I heard a door open, but did not heed it. It was only when I saw two faces in the mirror. It was only when another face rose over my shoulder and two other eyes met mine. I wheeled like a flash and seized a long knife from my dressing table, and my cousin sprang back very pale, crying, Hildred, for God's sake! Then, as my hand fell, he said, It is I, Louis. Don't you know me? I stood silent. I could not have spoken for my life. He walked up to me and took the knife from my hand. What is all this? He inquired in a gentle voice. Are you ill? No, I replied, but I doubt if he heard me. Come, come, old fellow, he cried. Take off that brass crown and toddle into the study. Are you going to a masquerade? What's all this theatrical tinsel anyway? I was glad he thought the crown was made of brass and paste, yet I didn't like him any the better for thinking so. I let him take it from my hand, knowing it was best to humor him. He tossed the splendid diadem in the air, and catching it, turned to me, smiling. It's dear at fifty cents, he said. What's it for? 
I did not answer, but took the circlet from his hands and placing it in the safe shut the massive steel door. The alarm ceased its infernal din at once. He watched me curiously, but did not seem to notice the sudden ceasing of the alarm. He did, however, speak of the safe as a biscuit box. Fearing lest he might examine the combination, I led the way into my study. Lewis threw himself on the sofa and flicked at flies with his eternal riding whip. He wore his fatigue uniform with the braided jacket and jaunty cap, and I noticed that his riding boots were all splashed with red mud. Where have you been? I inquired. Jumping mud creeks in Jersey, he said. I haven't had time to change yet. I was rather in a hurry to see you. Haven't you got a glass of something? I'm dead tired. Been in the saddle twenty-four hours. I gave him some brandy from my medicinal store, which he drank with a grimace. Damned bad stuff, he observed. I'll give you an address where they sell brandy that is brandy. It's good enough for my needs, I said indifferently. I use it to rub my chest with. He stared and flicked at another fly. See here, old fellow, he began. I've got something to suggest to you. It's four years now that you've shut yourself up here like an owl, never going anywhere, never taking any healthy exercise, never doing a damn thing but poring over those books up there on the mantelpiece. He glanced along the row of shelves. Napoleon, 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 he read. For heaven's sake, have you nothing but Napoleons there? I wish they were bound in gold, I said. But wait, yes, there is another book, The King in Yellow. I looked him steadily in the eye. Have you never read it? I asked. I? No, thank God. I don't want to be driven crazy. I saw he regretted his speech as soon as he had uttered it. There is only one word which I loathe more than I do lunatic, and that word is crazy. But I controlled myself and asked him why he thought the king in yellow dangerous. Oh, I don't know, he said hastily. I only remember the excitement it created and the denunciations from pulpit and press. I believe the author shot himself after bringing forth this monstrosity, didn't he? I understand he is still alive, I answered. That's probably true, he muttered. Bullets couldn't kill a fiend like that. It is a book of great truths, I said. Yes, he replied, of truths which send men frantic and blast their lives. I don't care if the thing is, as they say, the very supreme essence of art. It's a crime to have written it, and I for one shall never open its pages. Is that what you have come to tell me? I asked. No, he said. I came to tell you that I am going to be married. I believe for a moment my heart ceased to beat, but I kept my eyes on his face. Yes, he continued, smiling happily, married to the sweetest girl on earth. Constance Hobrick, I said mechanically. How did you know? he cried, astonished. I didn't know it myself until that evening last April, when we strolled down to the embankment before dinner. When is it to be? I asked. It was to have been next September, but an hour ago a dispatch came 
ordering our regiment to the Presidio, San Francisco. We leave at noon tomorrow. Tomorrow, he repeated. Just think, Hildred. Tomorrow I shall be the happiest fellow that ever drew breath in this jolly world, for Constance will go with me. I offered him my hand in congratulation, and he seized and shook it like the good-natured fool he was or pretended to be. I am going to get my squadron as a wedding present, he rattled on. Captain and Mrs. Louis Castaigne, eh, Hildred? Then he told me where it was to be and who were to be there, and made me promise to come and be best man. I set my teeth and listened to his boyish chatter without showing what I felt, but... I was getting to the limit of my endurance, and when he jumped up and, switching his spurs till they jingled, said he must go, I did not detain him. There's one thing I want to ask of you, I said quietly. Out with it, it's promised, he laughed. I want you to meet me for a quarter of an hour's talk tonight. Of course, if you wish, he said, somewhat puzzled. Where? Anywhere in the park there. What time, Hildred? Midnight. What in the name of... He began, but checked himself and laughingly assented. I watched him go down the stairs and hurry away, his saber banging at every stride. He turned into Bleecker Street, and I knew he was going to see Constance. I gave him ten minutes to disappear, and then followed in his footsteps, taking with me the jeweled crown and the silken robe embroidered with the yellow sign. When I turned into Bleecker Street and entered the doorway which bore the sign, Mr. Wilde, Repairer of Reputations, Third Bell, I saw old Hauberk moving about in his shop and imagined I heard Constance's voice in the parlor, but I avoided them both and hurried up the trembling stairways to Mr. Wilde's apartment. I knocked and entered without ceremony. Mr. Wilde lay groaning on the floor, his face covered with blood, his clothes torn to shreds. Drops of blood were scattered about over the carpet, which had also been ripped and frayed in evidently recent struggle. It's that cursed cat, he said, ceasing his groans, and turning his colorless eyes to me. She attacked me while I was asleep. I believe she will kill me yet. This was too much, so I went into the kitchen and, seizing a hatchet from the pantry, started to find the infernal beast and settle her then and there. My search was fruitless, and after a while I gave it up and came back to find Mr. Wilde squatting on his high chair by the table. He had washed his face and changed his clothes. The great furrows which the cat's claws had plowed up in his face, he had filled with colloidian and a rag hid the wound in his throat. I told him I should kill the cat when I came across her, but he only shook his head and turned to the open ledger before him. He read name after name of the people who had come to him in regard to their reputation, and the sums he had amassed were startling. I put on the screws now and then, he explained. One day or other, some of these people will assassinate you, I insisted. Do you think so? he said, rubbing his mutilated ears. It was useless to argue with him, so I took down the manuscript entitled Imperial Dynasty of America, 
for the last time I should ever take it down in Mr. Wilde's study. I read it through, thrilling and trembling with pleasure. When I had finished, Mr. Wilde took the manuscript and, turning to the dark passage which leads from his study to his bedchamber, called out in a loud voice, Vance! Then, for the first time, I noticed a man crouching there in the shadow. How I had overlooked him during my search for the cat, I cannot imagine. Vance, come in, cried Mr. Wilde. The figure rose and crept towards us, and I shall never forget the face that he raised to mine as the light from the window illuminated it. Vance, this is Mr. Castaigne, said Mr. Wilde. Before he had finished speaking, the man threw himself on the ground before the table, crying and gasping, Oh, God! Oh, my God! Help me! Forgive me! Oh, Mr. Castaigne, keep that man away! You cannot, you cannot mean it. You were different. Save me. I am broken down. I was in a madhouse, and now, when all was coming right, when I had forgotten the king, the king in yellow, and... But I shall go mad again. I shall go mad. His voice died into a choking rattle, for Mr. Wilde had leapt on him, and his right hand encircled the man's throat. When Vance fell in a heap on the floor, Mr. Wilde clambered nimbly into his chair again, and rubbing his mangled ears with the stump of his hand, turned to me and asked me for the ledger. I reached it down from the shelf, and he opened it. After a moment searching among the beautifully written pages, he coughed complacently and pointed to the name Vance. Vance, he read aloud. Osgood Oswald. Vance. At the sound of his name, the man on the floor raised his head and turned a convulsed face to Mr. Wilde. His eyes were injected with blood, his lips tumefied. Called April 28th, continued Mr. Wilde. Occupation, cashier in the Seaforth National Bank. Has served a term of forgery at Sing Sing, from whence he was transferred to the Asylum for the Criminally Insane. Pardoned by the Governor of New York and discharged from the Asylum January 19, 1918. Reputation damaged at Sheepshead Bay. Rumors that he lives beyond his income. Reputation to be repaired at once. Retainer, $1,500. Note has embezzled sums amounting to $30,000 since March 20th, 1919. Excellent family and secured present position through uncle's influence. Father, president of Seaforth Bank. I looked at the man on the floor. Get up, Vance, said Mr. Wilde in a gentle voice. Vance rose as if hypnotized. He will do as we suggest now observed Mr. Wilde, and opening the manuscript, he read the entire history of the imperial dynasty of America. Then, in a kind and soothing murmur, he ran over the important points with Vance, who stood like one stunned. His eyes were so blank and vacant that I imagined he had become half-witted, and remarked it to Mr. Wilde, who replied that it was of no consequence anyway. Very patiently, we pointed out to Vance what his share in the affair would be, 
and he seemed to understand after a while. Mr. Wilde explained the manuscript, using several volumes on heraldry, to substantiate the results of his researches. He mentioned the establishment of the dynasty in Carcosa, the lakes which connected Hastier, Aldebaran, and the mystery of the Hyades. He spoke of Casilda and Camilla, and sounded the cloudy depths of Demi and the lake of Hali. The scallop tatters of the king in yellow must hide Etil forever, he muttered. But I do not believe Vance heard him. Then, by degrees, he led Vance along the ramifications of the imperial family, to Uot and Thale, from now Talba and Phantom of Truth, to Aldonis. And then, tossing aside his manuscript and notes, he began the wonderful story of the last king. Fascinated and thrilled, I watched him. He threw up his head, his long arms were stretched out in a magnificent gesture of pride and power, and his eyes blazed deep in their sockets like two emeralds. Vance listened, stupefied. As for me, when at last Mr. Wilde had finished, and pointing to me cried, The cousin of the king, my head swam with excitement. Controlling myself with a superhuman effort, I explained to Vance why I alone was worthy of the crown and why my cousin must be exiled or die. I made him understand that my cousin must never marry, even after renouncing all his claims, and how that least of all he should marry the daughter of the Marquis of Avonshire and bring England into the question. I showed him a list of thousands of names which Mr. Wilde had drawn up. Every man whose name was there had received the yellow sign which no living human being dared disregard. The city, the state, the whole land were ready to rise and tremble before the pallid mask. The time had come. The people should know the son of Hestur and the whole world bow to the black stars which hang in the sky over Carcosa. Vance leaned on the table, his head buried in his hands. Mr. Wilde drew a rough sketch on the margin of yesterday's herald with a bit of lead pencil. It was a plan of Hobrick's rooms. Then he wrote out the order and affixed the seal and shaking like a palsied man I signed my first writ of execution with my name, Hildred Rex. Mr. Wilde clambered to the floor and, unlocking the cabinet, took a long square box from the first shelf. This he brought to the table and opened. A new knife lay in the tissue paper inside, and I picked it up and handed it to Vance, along with the order and the plan of Hobrick's apartment. Then Mr. Wilde told Vance he could go, and he went, shambling like an outcast of the slums. I sat for a while, watching the daylight fade behind the square tower of the Judson Memorial Church, and finally, gathering up the manuscript and notes, took my hat and started for the door. Mr. Wilde watched me in silence. When I had stepped into the hall, I looked back. Mr. Wilde's small eyes were still fixed on me. Behind him, the shadows gathered in the fading light. Then I closed the door behind me and went out into the darkening streets. I had eaten nothing since breakfast, 
but I was not hungry. A wretched, half-starved creature who stood looking across the street at the lethal chamber noticed me and came up to tell me a tale of misery. I gave him money, I don't know why, and he went away without thanking me. An hour later, another outcast approached and whined his story. I had a blank bit of paper in my pocket, on which was traced the yellow sign, and I handed it to him. He looked at it stupidly for a moment, and then, with an uncertain glance at me, folded it with what seemed to me exaggerated care and placed it in his bosom. The electric lights were sparkling among the trees, and the new moon shone in the sky above the lethal chamber. It was tiresome waiting in the square. I wandered from the marble arch to the artillery stables and back again to the lotus fountain. The flowers and grass exhaled a fragrance which troubled me. The jet of the fountain played in the moonlight, and the musical splash of falling drops reminded me of the tinkle of chained mail in Hobrick's shop. But it was not so fascinating, and the dull sparkle of the moonlight on the water brought no such sensations of exquisite pleasure. And when the sunshine played over the polished steel of a corslet on Hobrick's knee, I watched the bats darting and turning above the water plants in the fountain basin, but their rapid, jerky flight set my nerves on edge, and I went away again to walk aimlessly to and fro among the trees. The artillery stables were dark, but in the cavalry barracks the officers' windows were brilliantly lighted, and the sally port was constantly filled with troopers in fatigue, carrying straw and harness and baskets filled with tin dishes. Twice the mounted sentry at the gates was changed while I wandered up and down the asphalt walk. I looked at my watch. It was nearly time. The lights in the barracks went out one by one. The barred gate was closed, and every minute or two an officer passed in through the side wicket, leaving a rattle of accoutrements and a jingle of spurs on the night air. The square had become very silent. The last homeless loiterer had been driven away by the gray-coated park policemen. The car tracks along Worcester Street were deserted, and the only sound which broke the stillness was the stamping of the sentry's horse and the ring of his saber against the saddle pommel. In the barracks, the officers' quarters were still lighted, and military servants passed and repassed before the bay windows. Twelve o'clock sounded from the new spire of St. Francis Xavier, and at the last stroke of the sad-toned bell, a figure passed through the wicket beside the portcullis, returned the salute of the sentry, and crossing the street, entered the square and advanced toward the Benedict apartment house. Lewis, I called. The man pivoted on his spurred heels and came straight toward me. Is that you, Hildred? Yes, you are on time. I took his offered hand, and we strolled toward the lethal chamber. He rattled on about his wedding and the graces of Constance and their future prospects, calling my attention to his captain's shoulder straps and the triple gold arabesque on his sleeve and fatigue cap. I believe I listened as much to the music of his spurs and saber as I did to his boyish babble and at last we stood under the elms on the 4th Street corner of the square opposite the lethal chamber.
Then he laughed and asked me what I wanted with him. I motioned him to a seat on a bench under the electric light and sat down beside him. He looked at me curiously with that same searching glance which I hate and fear so in doctors. I felt the insult of his look, but he did not know it, and I carefully concealed my feelings. Well, old chap, he inquired, what can I do for you? I drew from my pocket the manuscript and notes of the Imperial Dynasty of America, and looking him in the eye, said, I will tell you. On your word as a soldier, promise me to read this manuscript from beginning to end, without asking me a question. Promise me to read these notes in the same way, and promise me to listen to what I have to tell later. I promise, if you wish it, he said pleasantly. Give me the paper, Hildred. He began to read, raising his eyebrows with a puzzled, whimsical air, which made me tremble with suppressed anger. As he advanced, his eyebrows contracted, and his lips seemed to form the word rubbish. Then he looked slightly bored, but apparently for my sake, read with an attempt at interest, which presently ceased to be an effort. He started when in closely written pages he came to his own name, and when he came to mine, he lowered the paper, and looked sharply at me for a moment. But he kept his word, and resumed his reading, and I let the half-formed question die on his lips unanswered. When he came to the end and read the signature of Mr. Wilde, he folded the paper carefully and returned it to me. I handed him the notes, and he settled back, pushing his fatigue cap up to his forehead with a boyish gesture, which I remembered so well in school. I watched his face as he read, and when he finished, I took the notes with the manuscript and placed them in my pocket. Then I unfolded a scroll marked with the yellow sign. He saw the sign, but he did not seem to recognize it, and I called his attention to it somewhat sharply. Well, he said, I see it. What is it? It is the yellow sign, I said angrily. Oh, that's it, is it? said Lewis, in that flattering voice which Dr. Archer used to employ with me, and would probably have employed again had I not settled his affair for him. I kept my rage down and answered as steadily as possible. Listen, you have engaged your word? I am listening, old chap, he replied soothingly. I began to speak very calmly. Dr. Archer, having by some means become possessed of the secret of the imperial succession, attempted to deprive me of my right alleging that because of a fall from my horse four years ago, I had become mentally deficient. He presumed to place me under restraint in his own house, in hopes of either driving me insane or poisoning me. I have not forgotten it. I visited him last night, and the interview was final. Lewis turned quite pale, but did not move. I resumed triumphantly. There are yet three people to be interviewed in the interests of Mr. Wilde and myself. They are my cousin Lewis, Mr. Hauberk, and his daughter Constance. Lewis sprang to his feet 
and I arose also and flung the paper marked with the yellow sign to the ground. Oh, I don't need to tell you what I have to say, I cried with a laugh of triumph. You must renounce the crown to me, do you hear? To me. Lewis looked at me with a startled air, but recovering himself said kindly, Of course I renounce the... What is it I must renounce? The crown, I said angrily. Of course, he answered. I renounce it. Come, old chap, I'll walk back to your rooms with you. Don't try any of your doctor's tricks on me, I cried, trembling with fury. Don't act as if you think I am insane. What nonsense, he replied. Come, it's getting late, Hildred. No, I shouted. You must listen. You cannot marry. I forbid it. Do you hear? I forbid it. You shall renounce the crown, and in reward I grant you exile. But if you refuse, you shall die. He tried to calm me, but I was roused at last, and drawing my long knife barred his way. Then I told him how they would find Dr. Archer in the cellar with his throat open, and I laughed in his face when I thought of Vance and his knife, and the order signed by me. Ah! You are the king, I cried, but I shall be king. Who are you to keep me from empire over all the habitable earth? I was born the cousin of a king, but I shall be king. Lewis stood white and rigid before me. Suddenly, a man came running up 4th Street, entered the gate of the lethal temple, traversed the path to the bronze doors at full speed, and plunged into the death chamber with the cry of one demented. And I laughed until I wept tears, for I had recognized Vance and knew that Hobrick and his daughter were no longer in my way. Go, I cried to Lewis. You have ceased to be a menace. You will never marry Constance now. And if you marry anyone else in your exile, I will visit you as I did my doctor last night. Mr. Wilde takes charge of you tomorrow. Then I turned and darted into South Fifth Avenue, and with a cry of terror, Lewis dropped his belt and saber and followed me like the wind. I heard him close behind me at the corner of Bleecker Street, and I dashed into the doorway under Hobrick's sign. He cried, Halt, or I fire! But when he saw that I flew up the stairs, leaving Hobrick's shop below, he left me, and I heard him hammering and shouting at their door, as though it were possible to arouse the dead. Mr. Wilde's door was open, and I entered crying, It is done! It is done! Let the nations rise and look upon their king! But I could not find Mr. Wilde. So I went to the cabinet and took the splendid diadem from its case. Then I drew on the white silk robe, embroidered with the yellow sign, and placed the crown upon my head. At last I was king, king by my right in Hastur, king because I knew the mystery of the Hyades, and my mind had sounded the depths of the Lake of Hali. I was king. The first gray pencilings of dawn would raise a tempest which would shake two hemispheres.
Then, as I stood, my every nerve pitched to the highest tension, faint with the joy and splendor of my thought. Without, in the dark passage, a man groaned. I seized the tallow dip and sprang to the door. The cat passed me like a demon, and the tallow dip went out. But my long knife flew swifter than she, and I heard her screech, and I knew that my knife had found her. For a moment I listened to her tumbling and thumping about in the darkness, and then when her frenzy ceased, I lighted a lamp and raised it over my head. Mr. Wilde lay on the floor with his throat torn open. At first I thought he was dead, but as I looked, a green sparkle came into his sunken eyes. His mutilated hand trembled, and then a spasm stretched his mouth from ear to ear. For a moment my terror and despair gave place to hope, but as I bent over him, his eyeballs rolled clean around in his head, and he died. Then, while I stood, transfixed with rage and despair, seeing my crown, my empire, every hope and every ambition, my very life, lying prostrate there with the dead master, they came, seized me from behind and bound me until my veins stood out like cords and my voice failed with the paroxysms of my frenzied screams. But I still raged, bleeding and infuriated among them, and more than one policeman felt my sharp teeth. Then, when I could no longer move, they came nearer. I saw old Hauberk, and behind him my cousin Lewis's ghastly face, and farther away in the corner a woman, Constance, weeping softly. Ah, I see it now! I shrieked. You have seized the throne and the empire. Woe, woe to you who are crowned with the crown of the king in yellow. Editor's Note Mr. Castain died yesterday in the Asylum for Criminal Insane. This has been The Repairer of Reputations. By Robert W. Chambers. Narrated by Mark Turetsky. Production copyright 2014 by Mark Turetsky. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Mark. And we're going to talk about The Repairer of Reputations, a short story from, it's a short story and a novelette from the beginning of. The King in Yellow, an 1895 collection of original short stories. I think they were never published anywhere else, right? I don't think uh, so. That's my understanding, yeah. Yeah, and I I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I I thought you just pick and choose, you swap them in, you shove them here, you push them over there. But actually, um, having now sort of gone through it sequentially, I'm thinking you really, they are a package, aren't they? The second story follows from the first in yeah. a very strange way, and all the different implications as you go down, they, 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 there seems to be a lot of connections between the stories. Yeah, but yeah, the especially the last two stories, which which have a lot of the same characters, but also there are uh, certain names that show up quite a lot, and for different characters, it seems, the name uh, Cynthia comes up a lot. Is it Cynthia? <laughs> no, not Cynthia. 
Uh, I forget. <laughs> well, uh, the first thing that strikes me is that in the repair, repair of reputations, we've got, you know, a, an amazingly hard to believe story uh, that I totally buy, bought into. Um, and then the, it ends with the coda like, oh, and the guy's insane. Um, he died in an insane, insane asylum. Sure. Um, but the very next story, um, which, you know, makes us reject basically everything, including the lethal chamber and, and, you know, the future setting and all that. And then the very next story is in Paris. I think it's, uh, the mask, right? Right. Yep. Yep. And in Paris, we're told, um, there's this guy and he's got this cool sort of scientific, uh, discovery he's made for art and he's never going to share it with anybody. Um, and, it's so simple and all that stuff. And then, uh, isn't he the guy who created the, the architect, the sculpture on the lethal chamber? Yeah, it's the, the, the sculptures the, of the fates that, uh, the artist who, yeah, we're Horace told is dead. We're told is dead, died in Paris, right? And it's right. the, he's, what is he working on? He's working on the sculpture of the fates. Right. right. So well, that's sort that, of internally consistent between the stories. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like totally makes us say, "Wait a second! I thought that lethal chamber wasn't real." <laughs> right. So maybe it's not. I mean, if you if you start questioning, you, you've basically rejected the first story and say this is totally not true. Um, but then you have to go back and revise it, right? And as you go through the stories, you have to go back and make your judgments about the first story be consistent with the later stories right which which means you're starting to question uh the sanity of your original uh assertions that this is just a story of a crazy man sure i love that (laughs) well but then there's the um the story the yellow sign which is the other story Mm -hmm. uh that is set around uh washington square park in new york city and in that, he mentions um, he mentions the the character in um, in this story, and he says uh, something like, "Oh yeah, I remember um, my friend Castain, who read The King in Yellow and went crazy and died two years ago." Um, mm-hmm. But it's not set in the future. It's set, mm-hmm. um, you know, roughly around, say, 1895 when the book was published. Mm-hmm. Why, 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 do we, why do we think that, the, the, like, for example, The Mask is set in Paris, presumably before the repair of reputations, because yes. the sculpture's in place. But why do we think that the later stories are not in the future? I mean, I know the technology's not advanced, but really in the, sec- in the first story, the technology is not advanced either. Sure, but um, there is uh, another thing. Um, in uh, this first story, Repair of Reputations, um, Castain says that uh, he sees there's a, a new statue that has replaced mm-hmm. um, the statue of um, uh, what's Garibaldi, his name? Garibaldi. right. Uh, yeah. And then in, in The Yellow Sign, he looks out of his window and he sees the statue of Garibaldi. Okay. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly something weird going on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the word for it. Yeah. Weird. Yes. Um, I, I've got a few theories, but I want to hear what you guys have to, have to, uh, have to say. Mr. Jim Moon, is this the first time you read the whole thing or did you read the whole book? Um, no, so, well, I just been revisiting the, uh, 
the key um, Carcosa Mythos stories, which is mainly the first four for this reread. But I've read the full book a few times. Um, wow. I'm trying to make sense of how the romantic ones fit with the rest of the book. Because it does, it is a strange volume. It starts with weird tales, and then you get these sort of artistic romances in the last three stories. Mm-hmm. It's still interesting, yeah. but it's kind of it's it's a very odd mixed bag and a strange, a strange it, sort of kind of arrangement, really. Absolutely, there's something there's something about a like there's a, a repeating motifs that come into those later stories that are in the early ones, but the this one seems like. The Repair of Reputations is the only one without, like, an artist at its center, basically. Isn't that, isn't that true? Well, unless you count the madman as an artist with his <laughs> elaborate <laughs> fantasies created. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, um, there's that. Yeah. Um, but, he, I mean, he lives in sort of an uh, artist lifestyle sort of place, right? Um, oh, sure, yeah. And I, I want to ask about that. So, Mark, you, you you were going into the research on on the on the well, on Washington Square and New York and the, the geography of of the layout. I, I got to ask you, where does Castain live as opposed to Mister Wild? Um. Well, Are yeah, they in the same apartment. Yeah, it's it's it, he never really discusses where he lives. He mostly visits Mr. Wild um and he visits uh Hawbrook, which is um, downstairs. Right. And uh he talks about visiting his doctor uh who's on Gramercy, which is not too far, about 20 minutes walk. Mm-hmm. Um and uh of course his cousin lives uh on the barracks which are also on Washington Square. Uh, so it's pretty central to Washington Square, this, uh, this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, it was weird for me at first trying to locate things because, uh, some of the street names have changed since, uh, since this story was written. So, uh, he talks about, um, he talks Bleaker about. Street, that's one of them. He, uh, yeah. That's um, still there, right? That's still there. Uh, but he talks about, uh, Fifth Avenue South, uh, which doesn't really exist anymore. Um, the Fifth Avenue used to go through the park, um, you know, through the, um, the Washington Square Arch, um, mm-hmm. and apparently continued onto what is now LaGuardia Place, which, uh, uh, yeah, of course, that's obviously changed, yeah. Yeah, LaGuardia was not. I, I guess he was born when this was written, but uh, certainly not. Uh, not, He's not well being known. honored for the street, <laughs> right? Um, but there's an interesting thing: is that the um, uh, the elevated train used to run on Fifth Avenue South, and I saw this this one theory that he that uh, perhaps um, our hero Castaigne, um has confused uh, a subway entrance for mm-hmm. a death mm-hmm. chamber. Uh, this is just something I found on Wikipedia, so uh, I can't I really source it. Um, which would sort of make sense because uh, at the beginning he talks about how they've gotten rid of the elevated trains and installed underground roads. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if they were following the same He's a, path, seems to leave his neighborhood, right? <laughs> so if right. I go down there, I'll die. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Yeah, they sort of remind me of the uh, the suicide booths from uh, from Futurama. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's set in New York too. Yeah, new New York. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean Washington Square. Um, 
and and uh, the West Village um, has always been sort of a bohemian. Well, I, I don't know about always, but certainly at this point was a very bohemian place. Um, um, a lot of theaters around there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. now it's uh, filled with people who can afford to live there, so it's significantly right. less bohemian. Uh, right. A lot of sex shops around there now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also New York University is right there. And um, so if you locate precisely where he says this uh, death chamber is, mm-hmm. um, he says between Thompson and uh, Fifth Avenue South, uh, just off of Washington Square, um, uh, sorry, not Thompson, uh, Worcester and Fifth Avenue South. Um, that's the location of uh, NYU's main library, Bob's Library, um, which was built in the 70s. And sort of a weird, creepy, prescient thing is that uh, they had to, a few years ago, uh, redesign a lot of the interior of Bob's because of uh, a lot of suicides happening there. <laughs> there were three suicides. Um so yeah, it's like yeah, that Look is the chamber. Yeah, that is the site of a uh, sort of creepy prescient uh, uh thing going on there. <laughs> Wouldn't read there's, too much into it, but well, I don't I mean, I there's so many interesting things going on in just even even this first story that uh, like they just don't make any sense, but they're so cons- imp- like he hammers them home, right? He, for example, why is everything military, everything military, military, military? Like, right. It's full throughout the story. Why is there, why is he, like, when he hears the jingle of metal on the spurs of his cousin, uh, on Hobrick's, you know, mail that he's always working on, why is he, like, going to a trance for hours? Like, that's so weird. Yeah, that well, is. Why is any of this happening? And <laughs> why, why is it so important that he make, you know, make sure that we know that he's really like that rather than just, you know, just a tiny, you know, excuse to go and visit Hobart. It follows everywhere. Every path they go down, there's military exercises, there's fleets of ships. At the beginning, we're told all about, uh, about, you know, the military expansionism. I mean, it, it doesn't it lend itself later to us questioning whether or not he actually was wrong? Like, <laughs> like it, it's to- it seems totally like supportive of his stuff, but then is it all in his head? And then I, I, I read that same Wikipedia article, and I think somebody it said the citation needed, right? Uh, but it said something like, um, uh, he may be mistaking, uh, you know, a horse, horse, horseback, uh, you know, police as, as, um, parades of dragoons and, Right. And lancers and like those those terms, dragoons, hussars, lancers. The United States doesn't have those, right? Not not in eighteen ninety five. Yeah, he not, says they're they're designed in the in the Prussian style. Yeah, it it's totally. It feels like they're in Prussia, basically, right, with a giant fleet of German naval ships out in the, and and then we get that that there was a war, right, between some German general was stuck in. New Jersey or something, right? Yeah, in the 1910s, which also Isn't pretty that crazy. It's like such a huge world that he's invented. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, now who who do I mean by he? Is it Castaigne or is it Chambers? 
Well, it's, it's one within the other, isn't it? Of, um, I see the kind of the um, the uh, what's good the texture of his this sort of fantasy future he thinks he's living in or might be living in. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think that sort of ties into the kind of um, courtly old European sort of atmosphere of the King in Yellow play itself with Absolutely. its with its idea of sort of you know warring dynasties and um, from the you know from the hint you can sort of it is it is a tale of sort of a succession and mm-hmm. wrangling and wrangling for a throne from the hints you get in the other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that sort of colours his psychosis. And I think, you know, there's an argument kind of that this whole strange sort of, oh, kind of kind of like Napoleonic fascist state mm-hmm. <laughs> he's envisioning in the year 1920 is, is the corruption from the play affecting him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know, like, but, le- just affecting him, right? Other people have heard of it, right? Uh, in every, you know, subsequent story where the there's a bit of weird, there's the king in yellow, right? Mm, so it's, yeah. even if we reject our first guy, and, you know, the book is, you know, a delusion of his imagination, the very next story is, yeah, the, I was reading the king in yellow, and I threw it across the room, or whatever it was. Um, it's it's definitely a real book in the context of this of these stories, which is kind of crazy itself. But, of course, the book is named, <laughs> the book you're reading is called <laughs> The King in yellow. Right. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's something very weird going on there. Say more, Mr. Jim, and I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, it's all right. It's just um, to, like later writers who kind of played with the idea of sort of the king in yellow and Carcosa, um, rather than, uh, it's an idea that's sort of found its way into the Cthulhu mythos, mm-hmm. but it's also its own strand of the Carcosa mythos or the yellow mythos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's this idea that, you know, the, the, the king in yellow is like a force of entropy and Carcosa is a city that absorbs the vice and corruption of other cities and the madness of individuals and it's a place of strange coincidences and time slips and contradictions and you know it's a surrealist existential nightmare to be in Carcosa mm-hmm. <laughs> and that sort right. of kind of fits for and that comes from an interpretation of the repair of reputations of the, so that everything we're seeing is this fever fever dream this hallucination caused by exposure to the king in yellow coupled with this gentleman because he does say you know he, his supposed lunacy which he disputes comes from after had a fall on off a horse mm-hmm. and uh, there's the wonderfully sort of comic line where he dismisses his doctor saying well I was actually saner than he was I never yeah. trusted him he says he's just as sane as Mr. Wilde so <laughs> right <laughs> which yeah at, at that point in the story we know he's you know he's 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 in he's in the biscuit box, you know. He's <laughs> yeah. he's totally not reliable as an a hundred percent as a narrator. And yet, um I, I came up with a really interesting, I think, take on this. Because it it it's not horror, certainly. Um if it's weird fiction, it's very much of its own type, really, at least at this point in I guess it's following from some beer stuff, but it's it doesn't really feel like Bierce's two stories, right? Not to Not me. Not at all. Any. No. Yeah. Um. So it's it's doing its own thing, but it's obviously got a futuristic setting, at least in the first story. Uh, there's as we're going through it, we we don't necessarily have to 
say it's not in the future until at least the very end, right? So I was thinking, okay, so he's doing something like science fiction even, you know, at 1895, there really isn't such a thing as science fiction, but what there is, is science. And this story doesn't really care about science very much. At least, if you look at it, uh, and there's no technology, there's there's no cars, right? Yeah. He really doesn't care about, you know, the coming of technology, they're still riding horses and, you know, the, the pinnacle of technology is, you know, not dirigibles, which they would even have been working on in 1895, but, but it's the pinnacle of technology is a ship, right? Right. A big, you know, ironclad, uh, destroyer or something. I don't know, battleship or dreadnought, something like that. That's the pinnacle of, of technology. Uh, you want to get around town, you get on your horse, <laughs> you get on the carriage. Um, so it doesn't really care about science, but I think there's something interesting going on if you want to at least look at it this way. So there's a book in came out in, I think, 63, 1963, called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And when I read it, I thought it was pretty damn interesting. It's It's basically, it's the theory of how science works, or has worked anyways, in history. And the way certain theories come in and uh, go out and what the reaction to it, those theories by scientists are at the time. So when uh, Copernicus is coming up with a, a way of looking at our solar system where earth's not at the center, but the sun's at the center using his idea, there's actually no, you know, it's, this might sound counterintuitive, but at the time, it is no better at explaining anything than the old Ptolemaic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, you, you, you can't do the calculations better by doing it Copernicus's way. Um, now, we say, well, obviously, he's, Copernicus is right, but it wasn't as obvious uh, at the time, and not everybody accepted it. And it took a long time, basically the lifetime of all of the people who were using the old Ptolemaic system mm. to die off. Right. And at that time, when we get Galileo coming in with his telescope, he looks up in the sky. They don't believe him. They, they, they look through the telescope and they think they're, you know, they think there's something on the glass. They think that he's, he's, you know, tricking them somehow so that he can get celebrity status. Um, Hello? And then, uh, are you still there? Uh, yeah, you cut out for a moment. Okay, sorry, sorry about that. Um, so, Galileo, he's got his telescope, he shows it to the Pope, says, look through this, you can see the moons of Jupiter. And they're like, Jupiter doesn't have any moons. Only planet with moons, with a moon is our planet. And that's the way God intended it, right? So, this rejection of, of the facts of science uh, makes things seem unreal. And so in in this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn's idea is that uh, what we've got in science is uh, a paradigm that we're all living in. And this paradigm explains uh, where what scientists' job is to do. It's, it's to work on these little problems and, to, and push science forward uh, so that we have greater understanding. So in, you know, looking at the atomic uh table of the atomic elements you you say look we're at number 45 let's move our way up and so you start looking for other heavier elements 
but uh, that table was had to be invented. And before that table, uh, the guy who was coming up with the idea of, you know, putting all these disparate material objects together, he was basically not going to be believed by the people around him. They say, yeah, that's all well and nice, but I'm working on my own chart here. So when you're in a time of scientific flux, most people reject the new findings, and maybe they should, but they don't really know. So 1895, what are we seeing? We're seeing uh, basically the beginnings of atomics, right? And that comes in t- uh, the atomic theory, modern atomic theory. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that comes in in our second story in The, the Mask, right. right? Where he starts saying, you know, atom by atom, the pieces are being replaced. Um, and what does that mean, right? And so it's done in sort of an artistic way rather than a scientific way in that story. But if if you think of how Lovecraft, right, he developed his sort of cosmicism, it comes out of his love of astronomy. You know, I I found I tweeted last year, I think it was, uh, his first ever published anything, and it was a, like a letter to an astronomy magazine yes, saying... Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> something about Neptune, you know, being not the the last star, no, not the last planet in the solar system. Um, and, you know, he's very interested. But if you're walking down the streets of Providence or even you know, New York today, and you say, hey, do you realize to the stranger next to you in the queue for the hot dog or whatever it is, um, do you realize that the Earth is just a tiny speck in a sea of specks that are on a beach on a planet of a billion planets and, you know, like just trying to explain to people the size of the universe? Most people, I'm convinced still today, even if they, you know, nod their head and say, yeah, I heard that, they don't grasp the implication of it right and that not being able to grasp the implication of it means you can't grasp the consequence which is we are unimportant um and then so how how does this all tie together well um you guys remember when steve jobs died right yeah um they were all people are all talking about him and how his personality worked and one of the things they they were saying is he had this uh reality distortion field Right. That he could just, you know, come into a room and say, we're going to work on this project and it's going to happen and I can see it. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, he he did it before. He can do it again. Right. And now whether, you know, he had just really good predictive powers or people just, you know, uh, didn't talk about how many times that didn't work um, (laughs) doesn't really matter because he believed it himself and he got a lot of people to follow him down that path. And most of our reality, the reality that humans live today, is not dealing with, you know, where to find food and, uh, you know, whether how to keep warm and stuff like that. But it's, it is a kind of social uh, engineering that we see in r- the repair of reputations, right? Right. This guy who can distort reality for others by, you know, basically restoring the reputation of massive numbers of strangers there's something really interesting going on with mr wilde's career i mean there are sort of real life versions of that but the the ability to distort social reality is a real phenomenon Mm. um and 
one of the things that made me think of all this is remember what's on uh, Castaigne's bookshelf is Napoleon, 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 Napoleon yeah. and and then the King in Yellow, and Napoleon basically his idea is I'm better than everybody else. I can <laughs> I can command generals better than everybody else. It, it, it certainly has some sort of power, right? Right. And what happens at the end of Napoleon, or at least close to the end of Napoleon's career, is he's emperor, right? He's managed to go from being, you know, a, a very minor nobility on a small, obscure, you know, French province to becoming the emperor, some, some job that has never happened in France since, you know, Charlemagne, um, of a country that said it wanted to get rid of kings. He becomes the emperor of a country that says there is no more nobility, there is no more, or there's no more royalty. And for his descendants, the power of his, his, um, distortion of that reality is like, I was reading that one of Napoleon's descendants was about to marry into the English royal family. It's like, how does, how does this, you know, like, how does this happen? Right. It's all social. And so uh, there's something going on there that uh, I wanted to see what you guys thought about this giant, massive, crazy theory I'm trying to use to explain <laughs> repair or reputation. What do you think? Well, it sounds a lot like uh, this um, George Bernard Shaw quote that I recently heard. And that's, uh, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world the unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, mm-hmm. all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Uh, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. It also, you know, ties in with the, I, I guess a con- then contemporary guy was Emperor Norton. You guys know about him, right? Oh, yes, oh. yeah, yeah. San Francisco. Um, oh, yes, mm. right. It also exa- it kind of explains to me why... Uh, um, in the story, Repair of Reputations, our hero says, or no, it's Mr. Wilde who says, I'm not going to uh, involve ca- California and the other uh, Pacific states because they don't deserve the yellow sign. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're already under the sway of Mr. Emperor Norton or something. <laughs> was another, right. another quote from a, a very minor way, right? I mean, that's Emperor Norton's story, right? Is he somehow convinced people to accept his script as, <laughs> as a legitimate tender. Right. Sorry. Continue, Jim. I say another contemporary quote that sprang to my mind is a, is a base quote. and said, there's no truer sign of genius than um, as soon as a fellow announces it, you'll be surrounded by a confederacy of dunces against him. Right. <laughs> and right. that kind of re- seems to ring very true of a sort of Castaigne's attitude as it develops throughout the repairer of reputations that Mr. Wilde is a genius Mr. Moab <laughs> knows everything you're all fools I'm going to rule you all I am the descendant of Hasta <laughs> you know, I have right. the, the crown of the king in yellow um, how did he get that crown did he make it himself and then put it in that card I mean that's what we got to assume right he put it in that cardboard box himself could be <laughs> well, this is, it is a crown he's made <laughs> <laughs> bits and bobs and keeps in a biscuit tin. Um, it's one of the it, it, wonderful reveals in the story of those little telling lines of, you kept referring to the safe as a biscuit tin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the the alarm that goes off, right? Only he can hear it. Mm. Yeah. 
there's 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 a lot of very interesting parallels uh just within the story itself so mr uh castain is going to visit his his friend mr wild who lives above the shop of hauberk yeah who's, who's an he's armorer the, i mean right yeah his so name bizarre. is hauberk as well which <laughs> means like chainmail uh you know undergarment or something. Sure, but I mean, if we're to believe uh, Castain, it's an assumed name because he's actually the, the Duke of Avonshire. Right. <laughs> but to, see, isn't there something interesting, like if yeah, uh, you live in New York, right? Yeah. There's got to be a lot of weird sh- weird stores like that. There, there's got to be an armorer there, right? Somewhere. Well, yeah, I mean, he says he's the armorer for the Metropolitan Museum and uh, right. Matt, that's reasonable. Yeah, certainly has a, a big armor collection. Um, he's pretty far from the Met, uh, if that's the case. Um, but you know, it's not unheard of. No, no, it seems it seems reasonable that there would be an armor there. It just happens, you know, you happen to go into a very strange kind of shop, but it, they got to be somewhere, right? right? Somewhere, and and a major metropolitan location seems reasonable. Uh, it, it it's kind of coincidental for a story, but. <laughs> Okay, but uh, here's the thing is, the cousin is coming to visit uh, Castain. Um, I can't remember. What's his first name? Or Louis. Louis. Yeah. Okay, Louis. Or Louis, maybe. <laughs> Could be Louis. Uh, yeah. So he's, his cousin is coming to visit him um, in kind of the same way that uh, Louis goes to visit uh, Mr. Wilde. It's like... Okay, gotta go visit the crazy friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, why does this uh, cousin want to hang out with uh, our main character so much? I mean, uh, he happens to a lot with the, uh, you know, the daughter being down, just downstairs right. of uh, Auberk, but there's there's some weird parallel there, and it's is it all just because everything's set in Washington Square, but. And they always are heading back or past the the lethal chamber. It's so you know it's it's we never go inside, right? right? There's no appearance of what the contents look like inside. But there's always you know bums hanging out or maybe people about to kill themselves hanging out right in front of it. Yes. And he's giving them money or he gives them yellow signs. Yeah, there's that's some- that's a weird point as well because uh, you know apparently it's the the yellow sign whose call no man can. Uh, can uh, uh, deny, and he hands it to this bum, and this guy just sort of looks at it, puts it in his pocket, and walks away. It doesn't, (laughs) I mean, it's possible he's now under, you know, the thrall of the yellow sign, but doesn't doesn't seem like it has too big an effect on him. I agree. (laughs) Uh, uh, This is is the second story I, I, I think you've done for this podcast, Mark. Yeah. Uh, with a crazy guy, right? No, no, with a crazy guy. Oh, sure. The main character. Yeah. Um, did you feel any resonance uh, to Who Knows by Guido Maupassant when you were reading this one? Um, you know, it feels like um, the major difference between um, the character in Who Knows and in this story is um, the... The the hero of Who Knows is uh, very isolated from other people. Mm. Uh, he's not a social person at all. 
Um, whereas Castain here, I mean, you know, even though they all think he's nuts, uh, he's got friends and family who care about him. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm not sure he has, I'm not sure Mr. Wilde is a separate person. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, maybe it's because, you know, in who knows, he lives in the country near a city. Uh, whereas in this case, I mean, he's right in major metropolitan area. It's, he's got a, he's running into people all the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, what, what is his job? <laughs> what is this guy's kind of job other than the king, obviously? Right. Well, so, well, my, my reading is, is that, you know, he, you know, because of, um, Lewis's betrothment to, to the daughter, that, you know, the armorer and his daughter are actually kind of sort of, you know, looking after his his crazy cousin. And that yeah. Lewis is always dropping by to, you know, to see how he's doing and probably, you know, pay them something for their trouble for keeping an eye on him. He's kind of... Right. I, you know, my reading is he, he's discharged by the doctor because, well, he's safe, but he's, you know, he's there's nothing we can do for him, to be honest. <laughs> Just well, keep an eye on him, he'll be fine. <laughs> this is very, very realistic. In my experience, that this is exactly how, uh, you know, schizophrenia works. Yeah. My limited experience is, is that it, it they, a person who's suffering from this has incredibly real delusions that may, are perfectly consistent for them and totally... Like you can, if you're having a conversation with somebody who totally believes something, um, like fundamental to reality to them, and you say to them, you're just crazy, that does not provoke a, a very positive reaction, especially when they get it a lot. Right. <laughs> it, it grates on them. And, and in fact, uh, it is somewhat more socially convenient and perhaps better to go along with it, mm-hmm. in my experience. You know, so somebody who has this uh, difficulty, you know, believes that they literally are a descendant of kings and that their time will come. Um, if you say, no, you're not, and you're, you know, you should get back on your meds um, and, you know, stop believing that because that makes no sense, um, you almost see that as a, you can see almost why they would think that that you're an impediment to their getting what they want. Notice how, you know, the cousin is the problem, right? Not some other person. Mm. It's the persons he knows, uh, who that's like, I could, I could sort of get that Mr. Wilde is not a real person and that they actually are living in the same apartment. Now as to the cat, (laughs) I don't have a great theory yet, but yeah, Mr. Wild, Mr. Wild, you know, looks like a crazy person. Um, he is perhaps a separate, you know, personality of, of, uh, Castain. But the, the, if the cousin comes and visits and says, Hey, yeah, uh, why don't we go for a walk down by the beach? Uh, we'll go with my girlfriend. They insist he come, right? Um, that almost is, you know, consistent with a, you know, very dutiful family member who, right. Who, who loves it? And then where does the crisis come is when the cousin says, I got to move to the Presidio, right? Yeah. Which is on the other side of the continent, right? Yeah. And mm, it, there's some sort of like crisis reality here, don't you think? Definitely, definitely, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, my my personal reading of the story is that, uh, you know, he's clearly suffering from some kind of delusion. He, at some point, walked in, you know, he heard the tinking of a hammer and mm-hmm. got entranced by it, went into this armor shop and got further entranced by the the shininess of rays of sun on metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's certainly got a bit of a crush on Constance. You know, he no. mm. he's in denial about it. Yeah, though. he's he's very dismissive of her, but he also says that she has beautiful eyes, mm-hmm. and he seems overly worried and concerned about his cousin, uh, who I think you know maybe you know they they got a hold of his cousin and said, hey, you know, your cousin here is uh, he's not causing any trouble, but you might want to you know keep an eye on him, and and that's where and that's where Lewis and Constance met up. Um, and now, now Lewis is, uh, Lewis and Constance, uh, have realized that they're in love with each other because, uh, uh, our main character here has, has already realized that. Um, and so that's the exact point when he decides, okay, I need to do something about this. I need to kill this guy. (laughs) (laughs) The, there, uh, the Wikipedia entry also mentions something about, the anti-story nature of the work. And I thought this was very interesting, and I went down a little rabbit hole uh, thinking about this and following, you know, little threads. It, it's it's something they, they're calling an anti-story, a type of writing where one or more of the fundamental rules of short storytelling is broken, resulting in what uh, people would consider experimental literature. And I, I think that totally fits so far. And then he says, in the case of the repair of reputation, Chambers all but invites the readers to doubt every single detail their unreliable narrator relates. Uh, by the way, that's you, Mark. They're criticizing you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can't trust this, Mark. He's just not reliable. No, no, no. Just kidding. Chambers breaks the basic contract between the author and reader by refusing to relate something that is both interesting and truthful. Uh, but see, I think that that there's something wrong about that. And this is even given the suspension of disbelief required for fiction. And then I went down that suspension of disbelief hole following that. That goes back to, um, uh, who's the guy who wrote Kublai Khan? Coleridge. Coleridge. Yeah. Samuel Taylor Coleridge and the, rom- the new, ro- uh, not new romantics, just regular romantic poets. <laughs> the old right? romantics. Yeah, the old romantic poets. <laughs> Who are who are themselves uh, doing a reaction against science? Right? There is forget about measuring. Go out there and experience. Right. And so um, it, it, it's the thing is is because if you look at the story just by itself, as we are doing here, well, sort of uh, th- as we presented prior, um, it doesn't lend itself to the assuming that the story is real. But if the cousin is a real character, not just in uh, Louis Castaigne's head, but he's actually a real character, uh, you know, a real person in the story, then he is a soldier. Yeah. Right? Because he knows about all those ships. And those ships are not uh, all made up, are they? Well, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We don't. What do we? What do we know for sure? Well, it'd be interesting to check, actually, because it's 
I mean, whether it's a deliberate tip-off by on Chambers' part to say, you know, to anyone who actually knew anything about the, the Navy at the time, that actually those ships aren't real. Right. It was the same way as, um, you know, the places and the title he ascribes to uh, Holberg and his family do not exist in the slightest. <laughs> They're, uh, you know, some kind of deranged idea of some England that never was that borders mm-hmm. Carcosa and the Lady of Halley, probably. But uh, <laughs> Right. But I, I also I also think there's something interesting, like the, those military, you know, all those ships, all those squadrons of of cavalry, aren't they going to be, aren't they going to be controlled by the king, uh, by the the proper king of the United States or whatever his title will be? Will not? Isn't that why we're? Aren't they the Chekhov's gun that is going to go off once he becomes the king of the? Planet pole planet, so that he can go conquer all those lands. Yeah, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I'd not thought of that before, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work out that way, right? They, yeah, uh, but they are props in his fantasy, aren't they? Of uh, yeah. the threads come together, right? Uh, now there are a few um, internal consist- inconsistencies in this story, though. Right. Uh, when you take it on its face, um, the first is. Now let, let me ask you guys: How old do you think these characters are? Uh, um, um, I, I assume they Castain were young, and Lewis, right? Yeah, I assume they were in their twenties. Yeah, that, that's that's mm. what I assume as well. Um, now, when he's looking at um, when he's looking at the uh, history of the Imperial Dynasty of America, right? He stops and he says, "Castain, Lewis de Calvados, born December nineteenth, eighteen seventy-seven." Now it could be Louis de Calvados is a different person from Louis. Oh. Could be his father, but if it's Louis, I mean that yeah, would that make him forty-three years old. Oh. Mm. Which... Yeah, and that's not quite young, young enough to have a, a, you know, a son who's an off a, a captain in. Right. Yeah. Um. I mean, it. You know, if he had him young, it's possible. But uh, I read that as actually being Louis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 because that's the. It says, uh, from the beginning, uh, when from Carcosa, the Hyades, Hester, and Aldebaran, to Castain, Louis de Calvados. So if he's the last entry in there, I'm guessing that that's, you know, the current rightful king. I, I was confused. I was saying Louis most of the time when I meant Hildred. Hildred's our unreliable narrator. Yes, yeah. Louis is the cousin. Right. Uh, and he says, especially drilling on Hildred de Calvados, uh, only son of Hildred Castain and Edith Landis uh, Castain, first in succession. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's Hildred de Calvados. Lewis is Lewis de Calvados. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's a big hint right there that, yeah, this is actually taking place in, you know, 1895 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a- I, 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 I want to also, oh, you, you go, you keep going. I got one more thing. I want to go back to who knows. Uh, sure. Because some of you were saying, brought that up, but keep going. Um, there's one other, um, bit of geographical nonsense going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's that he, he says that, um, basically everything along the, uh, along the, what he calls the North River, it's the Hudson River, uh, is what <laughs> we would call it. Um, it has been turned into one long park from the battery all the way up to, um, and everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. 
Um, and he says that um, they're sitting under the statue of General Sheridan. Now, that's at Sheridan Square. Um, it's not – I mean, it's like four or five blocks from from the water, but it's not right there. Um, hmm. And he talks about how he can see both New Jersey and um, Governor's Island, which would – the point where you could see that would be not around Sheridan Square. You would have to be all the way at the south edge of, of Manhattan in the Battery uh, to be able to see those two things. And he even talks about uh, how he hears the, the cannons of Castle Williams, which is it's a castle uh, on Governor's Island that even at the time of this writing was not an active military um, yeah, they, the old Red Castle, wasn't it? They called it. Uh, I forget, but now it's possible that you know, in the new imperialist America, Castle Williams mm. has been brought back into you know I- into commission. Um, but it's something to consider. Mm-hmm. Now it could be that he, you know, he just made a mistake with his New York geography. I'm totally forgetting well, that. Did you find you you sent me a picture on wikipedia uh you found the exact studio that that was described in the later stories yes Mm -hmm. that was like uh a little prior 1880s or something wasn't it yeah um so um chambers the the author studied at um the studio julien which is which was where a lot of very very famous uh french artists studied um marcel duchamp uh, probably being the most uh, famous among them. Um, so yeah, the, he has a lot of characters who are art students or mm-hmm. artists who studied there. Models. Uh, some models, yeah. The the art students are usually in love with the models who also seem to be prostitutes. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, there's there's definitely and and he. He started out as an artist. Uh, he has um, a few paintings that I was able to find. One was a um, uh, an illustration from uh, the Civil War uh, for a story or a book. Um, and the other that I found was a uh, not all that impressive um, sort of um, impressionist uh, painting. Um, I think is of uh, people dancing. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's so that actually uh, that actually ties into some of the later stories as well is is uh, uh, well actually the mask the next very next one um, I think there's something very cool about what's going on in that story I, d- I don't want to go too deep on that because uh, people can explore it for themselves but in that one the the invention of that technology uh, to make uh, sculptures out of living things right, right. Um, is kind of like what photography did to to painting. Absolutely. Mm. I, and the effect of that, you know, revolution in technology um, radically changed what painting was doing. Everything in painting was going very much down uh, a, you know, three-dimensional realism sort of uh, path. And then the daguerreotype comes in is basically puts thousands and thousands of artists, portraitists out of work, Right. Landscapists out of work, uh, maybe a little less, but portraitists are, they're, you know, unless you're, uh, 
you know, super wealthy, you're not going to have your portrait done, right? You're just going to have a photograph, right? Or right. stereotype done. Um, and so we get all those f- very fascinating later 19th century, early 20th century um, re- reactions to uh, this new technology that's replacing some. We get impressionism and all that. And I think there's something very cool going on in that story, other than it's a very disruptive you know, idea. And of course it's disruptive in more than one way. It's not just disruptive to people's lives, but it's disruptive in the same way as, you know, finding out that the earth is not at the center of the universe. Right. Is, is what I'm thinking. Mm. But uh, before I go too far away, I, I don't want to forget this kind of interesting point. Do you remember in who knows, um, there's a character, I, Jim, you've read that story, right? Oh yes. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a character in the, the shop later on who is described as sort of pale and white, uh, pale, bald and short. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, uh, I was thinking in, when we talked about it, he was like a, a homunculus, a little version of the man inside. Right. And, and we get the description in uh, the repair of reputations of Mr. Wild. He is not only, um, you know, covered in scars for, you know, obviously interesting reasons, but he's also described as being the size of an eight year old with incredibly mm. thick arms and incredibly thick legs. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, weightlifter arms and weightlifter legs. And then, you know, this strange shaped head and also pale with no ears, right? Mm -hmm. Or malformed, not malformed, chewed off ears. And he's missing one hand, right? Fingers from one hand. I was thinking like, this has got to be a description of one part of our hero. Yeah. Because what happens when you fall from a horse is, yeah, things get busted on your body, but they also get like... If you don't have the fingers on one hand working because your arm doesn't work, you might translate it that way. And he, his ears are broken because he can't hear what people are saying to him. It's, that's not real. Yeah. Like, and he also wow. talks about how he hasn't ridden maybe uh, since the accident. Maybe it's because he can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why he's sort of stuck in this neighborhood. He's afraid of this lethal chamber that maybe the underground Although he doesn't seem averse to the idea of a underground train, does he? At first, um, it doesn't fit with it because he does describe the. Yeah. We don't even know its first-person narration for the first bit of the story. Yeah, he just sort of describes it very matter-of-factly. Hmm. And then, and then we're, but the the manuscript that you know Mr. Wilde's always got, uh, and well, he's got on his shelf, and and uh, our hero has always paging through. That's. That's this story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Mm. And what about Chambers? Uh, the Chamber. Yeah. Is, is that a reference to Chambers <laughs> himself? It could very well be. <laughs> Just go to meta. <laughs> um, yeah, there's another uh, interesting connection with uh, one of the later romantic stories um, mm-hmm. called um, The Street of the First Shell. Uh, which is set during the uh, Prussian Siege of Paris. Um, uh, now, this it's about American art students living in Paris during the siege. Uh, I looked it up, and Chambers was not one of them. Uh, he, he was there quite a bit after the siege. Uh, but we do get 
um, the description of the of the Prussian soldiers, the the hussars, and 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 a lot of the same um, a lot of the same descriptions of the American imperialist or uh, soldiers that we see in uh, Repair of Reputations. Um, so that's an that's an interesting link between two stories, which are on their face very very different. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the uh, connection there also goes back to a story I was doing yesterday with a student in China um, is the Two Fishers by Montpassant, which yes. is a story of yeah. a great story, I think. Oh, of, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, of two friends who are stuck during the Siege of Paris in, in the 1870 war of uh, the Prussian, uh, Franco-Prussian war. And they, they, they basically kill themselves, right? Yeah. They, they are willing to risk everything for a very, you know, fish, fishing in the, yeah, in Jen. Nice like right? friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, maybe there is a connection. Maybe, uh, maybe our hero, I mean, uh, Chambers, I should say, read, uh, Montpassant. Um, it's not obviously connected other than that, but it's, he's certainly in the right city for it. Right. Um, now, uh, talking about, um, I was just doing a bit of quick research here. Uh, we, uh, I mentioned that, uh, I didn't know much about where, uh, our main character, Hildred, was living. Uh, he does mention it. He mentions, um, the Benedict, the ho- uh, yeah, mm-hmm. calls it the Benedict. And apparently, um, it was a, um, an apartment house that, um, was built for very low income, uh, mostly bachelors. Um, mm. and it's 80 Washington Square East, um, which is sort of right near where, um, where the barracks are supposed to be, where, where Lewis lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and. So- is is that also Mr. Wilde's apartment? Is uh, there a downstairs business I, or something? No, I think he's uh he's up on he's down on Bleecker Street. Um okay. it's in the same building as uh as um uh what what's his name? Uh Hobrick. Um but also uh apparently the Benedict was um home to many sort of down and out artists as well. Uh, uh-huh. so another hint that, uh, that we might be dealing with another, you know, former French art student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so something we haven't mentioned, uh, Mr. Jim Moon, are you watching True Detective? I am indeed. <laughs> and, uh, what, what do you think of it? Cause I think it's pretty fabulous. Um, I'm, I'm close to obsessed with it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it better not falter in the last episode. That's all I'm saying. I'll be furious. I, I'm, I don't think it will, I'm so, but... <laughs> I'm so impressed with it. I can't imagine it's going to get, you know, it's going to go off the rails. And it was all a dream. Because <laughs> that's, that's not, I don't think that's what's going to happen. Mark, you're watching it too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So by the time this podcast comes out, we'll know uh, what what what's going on. Um, did, I don't know. I, I, I think there's some... Very cool. It's a very cool usage, and it seems kind of like um, the way it's, you know, it's really sort of interested in what's going on in Chambers' book, don't you think? 
I mean, it's it's a detective story, murder mystery, but it's not really. Um, its focus seems to be more on detecting reality than yeah. detect uh, the murderer. Mm. Well, there's very much this whole idea of that you get in the chamber stories that it is it's about like identity and who people really are and people confronting mm. and finding out the truth of who they really are. <laughs> right. Uh, it's. I mean. I know I've, I've heard some people say, well, they should use the king in yellow because if they used Cthulhu or Satanism, it'd be too hackneyed. But I think there, there is more to it than that. That mm-hmm. if, if you well, know the, man the king with in the yellow. Face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, there was the man with the, the ears, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? Like, like the, the ears made me think, oh, God, this is a repair of reputation. <laughs> These fake ears. <laughs> Except he's got purple ears or something, mm-hmm. That's, as opposed to, like, they're pink in this story. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Wild's scary ears. <laughs> yeah, so why it, people it, go to him to have their reputations repaired when he's clearly a, a madman who's been mutilated? I, wanna, by his I, own wanna, I don't know, know how this works. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing got, it doesn't really get into. Absolutely, he, he's got the the president or the publisher and owner and editor of the biggest newspaper come to the, knock on the door. Come back tomorrow. Yeah. Um, is this has got to be the delusion, um, and yet uh, people do care about their reputation. And, and notice all of the the reputations they seem to have done the bad thing, that, right? Right? They are guilty of the crime that they are trying to get wiped from the record. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's weird that his record is only where the damage to their reputation took place. Not what was said, not what people <laughs> think, but it's just like, oh yeah, it happened here geographically. And, wow. uh, <laughs> you know, it's a what? It's, 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 it's almost like the reputation that our, you know, uh, Hildred has got as being a crazy man, his reputation has been damaged by him falling from that horse and obviously doing something bad. Uh, but it's it's like if I could only you know employ these people, it, it almost seems like a, the the way it works is you get you sign up. I was thinking it's kind of like that uh, that black and white movie. Uh, they always say crisscross, crisscross. You know, oh, like uh, strangers on a train. Strangers on a train, mm-hmm. right? It's like a massive uh, conspiracy on the on a, a clearinghouse for for murder, right? <laughs> You're gonna get your reputation back by killing uh, the people who who all the witnesses. Hurt your rep- <laughs> yeah, hurt your reputation. The people who know about it, and so you know, the publisher will kill somebody else, and. And then this guy will kill that guy, and then they, they, they all pay in, right? They all pay in to be in the system, and then they all get their reputations cleared out. It there's something weird going on about you know society sort of does work that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, um, yeah, he's it, basically what you're saying is Mr. Wild is a really good PR man. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, there's a show called Scandal. I've never seen it, right? But it, isn't that how it works, right? I haven't it's, seen it either. Okay. Uh, I don't think they go around bumping off everyone who saw... No, no, no. But, <laughs> but that, I think they blackmail You know, they yeah. blackmail mm. people, don't they? I don't know. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But there's something, there's something you know, like... Uh, there's this very weird scene in the third chapter um, near the... He, he's just come to Mr. Wilde's house 
our apartment and he's, you know, covered in scratches again, which <laughs> I want to have somebody explain that to me, but, um, he's covered in scratches again. And so he, he goes in, uh, Hildred goes into the kitchen, gets a butcher's, uh, hammer or whatever it is, knife. And he starts looking for the cat and he searches the entire apartment. He's going to try and kill the cat, even though, uh, Mr. Wilde doesn't want him to. He still, he still does it. Can't find the cat. And then, uh, Lu- uh not Lewis. Um, Wilde starts reading from Hildred. the, uh, yeah, no, Wilde, Mr. Wilde starts reading from the, the manuscript. And then he calls, uh, on, uh, the, there's another guy who is just, he was hiding in the hallway between the bedroom and the kitchen or something, or the sitting room. Do you know who I yeah, mean? Yeah, uh, Bertrand, I think his name is. Yeah, he's got a weird last name. I can't remember what it is now. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see uh, if I got, anyways, he, he couldn't, he, he searched the entire apartment, but he didn't see that guy hiding there. Right. Uh, I think his name was uh, Oswin uh, Os- Osgood, Osgood yeah. Ald- Oswald Vance. That's his name. Vance, Osgood, Mr. Ald- Vance. Ald- Os- Osgood, Osgood Oswald Vance, yeah. Osgood Oswald Vance, and he's the son of a president of a newspaper. No, no, son of the president of a bank. Right. And he's been embezzling funds. He was in jail for it. It it, it almost parallels the story of, um, you know, he was in an insane asylum, and he was crouching there in the corner, and then his job is to go kill uh, Constance, right? Yeah. Uh, Constance and uh, Hobrick. Constance and, and, and the father. Yeah. And uh, he fails at this, right? Uh, apparently. Um, yeah, it's unclear. At the end, he... he it, it's unclear who exactly has killed Wilde. Because you can read it as either Bertrand did it and then ran into the suicide booth, or yeah. the cat did it. <laughs> yeah, the cat finally got it. So that's that's who it is. It's the cat that's the murder. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's how the detective should not end. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, what do we make of the cat, Mister Moon? Have you got any idea what, what the cat represents? I, don't know. I, mean, I do have the feeling that the cat must be symbolic. I mean, I kind Absolutely. of toyed with the idea that Mister Wild. I mean, considering there is the the influence of. Oscar Wilde and the, you know, oh. Beardsley and the Yellow Book. I wonder if there's some kind of parallel there and kind of the cat is, um, uh, some symbolic of, um, what was then seen as the vice that was Oscar Wilde's downfall. He's, right. <laughs> and the fact he keeps taunting the cat and getting yeah. injured by it in this, you know, this kind of, this kind of, you know, Kind of, you know, Oscar, if you just toned it down a bit, you wouldn't end up in court for. Uh-huh. Un- what was deemed unnatural acts at the time and be persecuted for your homosexuality if you weren't, you know, tone it down. But that right. might be a bit tenuous. Um, maybe it's just more of an indicator that, you know, Mr. Wilde is maybe a real guy who's equally off his rocker. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it's one to signify that this isn't a sane man. He doesn't repair reputations. You know, it's kind of, oh, that's an important news editor. Well, it's probably the rent collector, you know. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, uh, he, he's living in his own web of fantasies as well. And it's kind of, you know, they have this strange overlap of insanity with the king in yellow. Mark, you, you, uh, you know, French. Um, isn't there a term like folie à deux or something like uh, that? Folie à deux, yeah. 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 What's, so that means like 
when two people get together, they can believe bullshit or I, something? I believe what it is is a shared hallucination. I believe it's related right. to mass hallucination, yeah. Right. Um, and that that also makes me say, uh, can you translate the first uh, line from the story? Because uh, yeah, let me pull it up French. right here. Ne rayons pas les fous. Leur folie dure plus longtemps que la nôtre. Voilà toute la différence. Rayon, that's um, uh, how does that translate? Um, it's um, rayé. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it's sort of don't make fun of. Uh, don't, yeah. Yeah, don't make fun of crazy people uh, right. because their insanity or, or their folly um, lasts longer than our own, and that's the only difference. Yeah, okay, so that's the that's the opening line that we're supposed to keep in mind as we read through the story. Yeah. Um. Don't make fun. Oh, I I think that that's a good policy. Don't make fun of crazy people. Yeah. Um. But isn't this isn't this sort of fit with the idea that uh, we don't really have perfect access to reality? Right. Uh, people do get caught up in in sort of. I, I mean, think of World War One, right? Mm-hmm. All these people think it's a great idea to sign up for. Uh, going into battle and getting killed. Now, yeah. they, they don't see it that way at first, but, uh, the reality is not caused, the, the difference between before they joined the army and after they come back, if they come back from war, is that they've went from a social reality where if you don't sign up, you get a white feather showing your cowardice. Right. And if you do sign up, uh, you get uh, all these social rewards, like everybody buying you drinks and clapping you on the back and calling you a hero and all that stuff. Um, when you come back from that war, your your folly, if if you have it, is probably that you you didn't see the reality for what it was. The, yeah. the harsh reality of of bullets kill people and and artillery does it even better. Right. Um, we're all trapped in a kind of Mr. Wild and Mr. Castain uh, world. Is that what that means? Um, their their insanity lasts longer. Yeah. Um, because we learn the harsh truths, maybe. Well, um, there's another way. Um, it, it, a fool could mean um a madman, but it could also mean just a fool. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, folie, is, is, I mean, that's also craziness Fol- and also folly. Uh, so it's um, it's it's tough to know um, from the context which exactly which meanings there. Uh, uh, um, this particular passage is taking. It's also quoted, right? Like it's yeah. probably something. He's yeah. probably referencing. I mean, it might be. It doesn't have a citation, so it probably is just a, a something that people say, right? In France at the time, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they were talking about uh, Montpassant. <laughs> um, interesting. I just 
quickly Googled it, and all I'm finding is uh, people asking about King in Yellow and True Detective. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we need a, an internet from 1890s to yeah. tell us. Yeah, precisely. Um, I know there there are some uh, some of these opening lines are uh, quotes from other sources, and others mm-hmm. are not. Uh, I know one is a um, I recognized as a um, um, uh, that um, Arabian poet. Uh, uh, I, I did a Omar oh, Khayyam. Okay. Um, mm. But uh, I'm not sure about this particular one. Um, not familiar with it. Uh, yeah, I have a feeling it's sort of a, a phrase that you, you know, you would hear. Yeah. Um, it's 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 pretty amazing. Um, is there any significance to the fact that every act, every quote comes from scene two or act two? Uh, we never get the opening of of the the poem. I'm just looking at the first page of the story, and of course, it starts with the quote. About from the the King in Yellow well, play, yeah they they never they actually never quote from Act Two. Uh, they always quote from Act One or Scene Two. Yeah, yeah. Um, but because scene, uh, Act Two, like any bit of it, would make you go insane. Apparently, so right. not safe to quote that. <laughs> <laughs> not safe to quote. Yeah, um, I I think that there's there's this story is so rich in such such a short. Um, you know, it's the 48 pages on my version. It's so densely packed with world and uh, incidents that it's beyond. I don't know how he made him, how he managed to make this. I don't see. I, I don't see another story like it. Right. Uh, it's so. Um, it is like revolutionary science in a certain sense because it does. It. it subverts all the under underpinnings of what you think a story uh, is supposed to do. It's supposed to have a plot that goes in a certain direction. And then is, is that what, what we're all expecting for true detective? Is that what we're hoping for? That it's not just going to be always, it was, it was uh, Rustin Cole. He's the murderer. Of course, that's what a lot of people are speculating online, but I think that that's, that's a folly that yeah. they've fallen into the trap of mm. thinking it's regular TV. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope it doesn't end with a sort of Shyamalan twist. Um, <laughs> well, oh, and and, and the other that. thing is, I mean, it seems within the context of the show that uh, this sort of cult, this religion that these people subscribe to uh, is just that, that they're... I haven't really seen much evidence in the show that there's going to be anything supernatural happening. And I would be a bit disappointed if it just sort of showed up at the end as an explanation, Mm -hmm. um, because I I don't think that would be sufficiently earned. Um, yeah, that's just my personal. I think it's going to be subtle. It's going to be a subtle, um, because it's been subtle all the way through so far. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, a lot of the power doesn't come from the the you know the reference of the king in yellow, but 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 sort of the attitudes of Cole and and Hart to their reality over time. I mean, I think that the, the structure of laying that the story out over such a long period of time that doesn't happen in in, in TV shows, right? Where it's a twelve year gap between yeah uh, mm. the stuff. That, 
That's not that never happens, does it? <laughs> you think of any precedents for that? Uh, there was two years or one year on Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> right? Yeah, but yeah, no, it, it they they generally. I just saw Vikings the second episode of the first season. They you know it's four year gap between the episodes, but um, yeah, it's that's just because so they can build some ships and <laughs> yeah. get some kids out of being mm-hmm. babies, you know. So actually, um, Rome did that. They had a uh, oh, they had hmm. a several years uh, gap at a certain point. Uh, right. I think because they needed uh, Augustus to be an adult. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, in that case, uh, we're looking at uh, history, though. I That's mean, true. Yeah. There's it's a different thing. I mean, I know there's often in in stories where you have like a present day thread and a and a past thread. There's a gap there, sure. but it's unusual to have a, another gap in the flashback. <laughs> Yeah, in the, in yeah. The past thread. Well, it's a bit like uh, Lost in that. That that that. Yeah, but I don't want to talk about Lost because that'll that'll make me think that the show, the True Detective, is going to be crap. <laughs> 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 because it's it's a, such a good setup, and you want to like it, mm-hmm. and then right. you find out they they really have no plan and no idea what they're doing. Well, so yeah. I think. I think with True Detective, the way this, the, the kind of story they're telling, the, the climax isn't going to hinge, I hope, on, like you say, a Shyamalan-style twist. It's more going to be a big emotional payoff. And right. One yeah. thing I will predict is, it ain't going to be a happy ending. It's going to be a really That's shattering ending for, for maybe one or both of them. <laughs> Right. The the one of the other connections between these two uh, stories is, uh, I mean, I think suicide is hugely important in this story. Uh, it's it's in practically every scene they go outside to go by the lethal chamber. Yeah. Um, it, it's also true in True Detective that uh, uh, Cole is it? Yeah, it's Cole. Mm-hmm. Is he says I don't have the temperament for suicide, but that was that was a while ago, right? Yeah. Um, and now he says, there's something I got to do, um, before I go or yeah. something like that. Um, and then in the latest one, right, they, the, the old lady who's seen Carcosa, when she say, she says, this is death is not the death end. And he's like, end, I hope yeah. she's wrong. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's fun stuff. Uh, getting back, um, it just occurred to me to the, um, the cat. In Mr. Wilde's apartment, mm-hmm. uh, there is another story in this uh, in this collection that uh, has a cat very very yeah. prominently featured. Right. Uh, that's uh, the Street of the Four Winds, mm-hmm. um, and in that, it's also not quite clear that if it's a cat or not. I mean, he says cat, but he also calls it the animal, the beast, mm-hmm. um, and uh, nice. it's certainly I, I, not to give away too much about that story, but it leads him into a pretty creepy situation. Um, you know, I think cats in general are associated with uh, sort of dark magic and and yeah. and, and evil omens. Um, you don't want to get on the cat's bad side. No. <laughs> uh, right? The, the black cat from Poe right. is a perfectly nice cat until he tries to kill it. Yeah. Um, in the same way that Mr. Wilde's always taunting his cat to cut him up. Why? Why? Oh. Yeah. They've got, uh, they've got an abusive relationship, uh, <laughs> Mr. Wilde and his cat. 
Absolutely. I don't know. There's something I, um, I was, did you guys see that video, uh, with, um, Stefan Rudnicki talking about this book? No, I haven't. Yeah, no. Oh, it's, it's cool. He, I mean, he doesn't go too deep down the, the rabbit hole, but he talks about how important it is to him as a book. And he said that he produced a play of, of the King in Yellow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which I think would be pretty interesting to see, although I don't know if I'd be the same afterwards. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's like a, a play based on a book that's about a play that drives you insane. It sounds pretty great. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's always going to be a, a, a problem with, you know, actually showing, you know, what Act Two is. Because yeah. He sort of describes Act One as being very sort of, mundane and and not very interesting uh in order to shock you all the more with act two and uh, you know if act two doesn't deliver the goods of rendering its audience insane by the end yeah, yeah. you've got yeah that, you know that's why it's never shown right? exactly <laughs> yeah yeah um in the beginning of the mask we do get uh a kind of quote from that's the next story in the book right um we get a quote from was it the last line of act one, I believe last line of act one. Yeah. And it's something like, uh, will you unmask, sir? Um, and he says, no, I can't unmask. <laughs> right. Oh this yeah. Yeah. This, I'm not wearing a mask. And, and they say, mm, well, that's no, right. No mask, no mask. And um, I was like, oh my God. So I, I was thinking it was like, is it the skull underneath? Is that what the pallid, the, it's described in this story too, in the repair of reputations, the pallid mask, right? Mm hmm. Um, is that what it is? Is the skull underneath the face? And you're wearing a, it looks like he's wearing a skull face mask, but actually it's a, um, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's another, um, um, neat connection between, uh, the mask in this story that I noticed. And it's that in the mask, um, the main character of that sees one of the faces of the four fates. And he says that it's his friend Boris's face, uh, Boris mm. being the sculptor. The artist, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's the one who made this. this aren't, there, aren't, there, aren't they supposed to be female, the face? Um, it could be. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, usually. Traditionally, yeah. like the mm, horns yeah, are. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the Furies. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, the fates, yeah, they're usually, uh, women with, uh, a, a, a spinning wheel. Yeah, hags or uh, yeah, hags. crones. Crones, crones. That's the word. Um, but um, yeah, he describes how how it's got uh, his friend Boris's face, um, but also that um, there's something weird going on with it, and that he can't quite put his finger on it. And at the end of uh, this story, when they see, no, it's not at the end. I, I believe it's at the end of part two or the beginning of part three, where he sees. Uh, a person running into uh, the suicide chamber. Mm. Uh, he looks at the statue of the fates for a very long time, and I'm nice. just wondering what that connection might be. Uh, you know, is he seeing the same thing as as the the character in the mask is seeing in that in that mm. one face? Um, and you know, I honestly don't know, but it's it's a connection. Uh, isn't there isn't there a, a bird that lands on that? Uh, the statue as well. Yes. And yes. then mm. that pauses the man from going at, in. Right. Um, and then the bird flies away and then he can go in or something like that. Yeah. 
Maybe it's the other way around. The bird bird flies off and then he runs away. Yeah, I'm not. I I don't remember the uh, the exact sequence offhand. He told uh, this is such a rereadable story because yeah. every time you go in it, you're, you're trying to piece it all. This is what the the really kind of the story I love because you, it's not just like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's a bunch of stuff is happening. Not sure what's going on. Don't know how to piece. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that's not put together, and you have to bring you know. There's missing pieces. Right? Yeah. You have to fill in those blanks. Um, and you're not even sure where the edges are. In this right. case, it, 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 it goes... Yeah, I, I tweeted you guys saying uh, the long arm of um, of the king in yellow reaches forward and backward <laughs> in time and space. Well, it does, I mean, you know, you were saying right. kind of it's not really a traditional horror story or a gothic story and... Oh. I think the, the closest analog for the repair of reputations I can think of is um, David Lynch's Lost Highway, mm. which really similarly plays with you know it's kind of the horror is a broken reality and shifts mm. in identity and it's it likewise it pulls the rug from under you where it, it starts and you think you're in one kind of story and then it flips right. it and you realise you're in it's something completely different but you're not entirely sure what. Right. Because uh, when I first read this, I was thinking, "All oh, right, yes, this is a this is you know uh, an 1890s sci-fi sort of dystopia tale." And then you read further, and you go, "Actually, it's yeah. not, is it? Uh, hang on, this can I believe a word I'm being told? Is it? You know, it's endless riddles. And the more you go back, the more you can sort of well, you know, ask questions such as, is Mr. Wild real at all?'" <laughs> um, right. Uh, I, I find it very readable too. I, I wasn't I wasn't expecting you know such good writing. Um, it's true in the other stories as well. That like it it uh, sometimes you know you like good writers because they have great ideas, but the the writing itself is you know it's just okay. Or sometimes it's you know it's hard to understand what the hell they're trying to tell you. This I have no trouble understanding what he's trying to say. What what he's saying. I just don't know what I just don't know what it means. Right. It's like stylistically, I mean, I, I think I first encountered it in uh, an anthology, some of the King and Yellow stories, and I was actually later surprised to find how early they'd been written. Mm-hmm. Because they don't, um, they don't, don't read Victorian. Um, no, no, no. Yeah, absolutely not. They're, they're, still, they're still actually very snappy and very immediate oh. now. <laughs> I, I'm, very, I'm very impressed. I mean, what, what seems the most strange thing about it is is the or sort of the artisty part of it is that it you know if you're not an artist why would you uh, expect uh, so many stories to be set in this sort of this milieu but it's uh, other you know other than the fact that they're you know they're all these painters and sculptors and things um, it seems very very much like like it could have been written today. I mean, I guess those mm. painters are still around and stuff and such, but we don't usually get stories told this way from their point of view. Uh, but yeah, it's, right. it feels incredibly. It, it could. It feels like it could have been written after Lovecraft. Mm. You know, I mean, it's got that kind of a freshness to it, and yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and um, kind of just the, the senses uses are quite economical. They're not the kind of labyrinthine sprawling into being paragraphs in their own right sentences you normally get with fiction from this era. Absolutely. 
Um, oh, there's, there's probably lots we've not uh, touched on. There's that uh, much in the sure. story. <laughs> yeah. Just beware the king in yellow. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Um, all right, I think I think we're pretty much ready. You ready to go all Talmud on this this story? <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. <laughs>